Hello, Jake and Sam. This is Kate. Several years ago, one of my good friends decided to take a paranormal vacation all along the East Coast. He started up in Sleepy Hollow, New York, worked his way through Salem, Massachusetts, and decided that no trip would be complete until he'd stopped in Fall River, Massachusetts to see the Lizzie Borden house. Now, when you go there, you get a tour of the place and a history of what took place that day. And as he walked through, the proprietor told him how Lizzie lived in the house with both of her parents. And one day, while she was home and the family maid, someone allegedly came in and murdered both of her parents with an axe. Her mother was found on the floor of the bedroom, and her father laid out across the living room sofa. Now, for a small town, this was a huge and alarming event, and everyone thought it odd that Lizzie was home at the time and didn't seem to hear the murders happening, so that after a while, all of the townsfolk began to suspect poor Lizzie of being the one who did the terrible deed herself. Everything got looked into and examined from top to bottom, and no evidence ever showed up that proved that Lizzie had been the one to do it. So she went free. Now, my friend did stay in the house and said he didn't hear or see anything supernatural. That didn't make it any less creepy. And the thing that stood out in his mind from the entire visit was the little rhyme that had been made up about Lizzie. And it goes, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... There was this girl... It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears, fables, myths, and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back. Hi. Hi, everyone. So I have some encouraging words for you. First of all, it won't be this hot forever. I know it feels like it will. Lies. I know. I know it feels like it will be this hot forever, but this isn't hell just yet. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe. But just, just remind yourself. That the fish are jumping, the cotton is high, your daddy's rich, and your mama's good looking. So hush, little baby, and don't you cry. Thanks, Porgy. Bess. <laughs> Definitely Bess. Fine. But we don't want to welcome all of you back. We want to encourage you to get on to iTunes or wherever you want to leave us ratings and reviews. It always helps people find our show. We do have some new reviewers we need to mention, including Jennifer DeWald, Glow Planet, and Sir Wolf, who called us wonderfully intelligent goofballs. Oh, well, that's, you know, going on a t-shirt. I think that sounds very... Apropos. Exactly. Yes, yes. And we do thank him for getting an iTunes account and leaving us a review, and you should too. Other ways you could find out more about the show is going to our website, justastorypod.com, where you'll find all of our sources and citations and other information about the show. As well as links to our Merchy Merch 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 store, where you can buy lovely apparel or accessories for your everyday life, um, such as coffee cups and journals, because we know our audience. You can also find links to our Patreon page. There you'll find another way to help support the show, and 
You can also get fun rewards such as extra episodes or stickers or other fun things, whatever we kind of come up with. Like we recently did a travelogue about some weird things we found in museums in D.C. while we were there. Yes, the people at our hotel thought we were crazy because we would run outside to record every night. <laughs> and another way that you can get in touch with us, other than our social medias, uh, just a story pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, our email is storypod at gmail.com. You can call the Urban Legend Hotline. The Urban Legend Hotline's number is 512-222-3375. And you may call and tell us your favorite urban legend scary story, joke, or your deepest, darkest secrets. And we will review them and use them as we believe to be appropriate, unless you specify some certain way that we should use them. Or if we need to alert the authorities. You know, we don't need to tell them up front that that's what's going to happen if they tell us they've been colluding with Russians, but it might be. It might be. It might be. Say, Sam, back to the rhyme at hand. The rhyme at hand, you say? The rhyme, the story, the legend, the tale. How can a story, a rhyme, have a whole legend inside of it? Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave gave her her mother mother 40 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. <laughs> yeah, it's creepy. So creepy. It's creepy because kids sing it. Well, they like jump rope and skip and dance around gleefully. Cinderella dressed in yellow. Lizzie Borden. Okay, we've changed topics drastically here. So the story of Lizzie Borden and the rhyme that's been around... As the Baltimore Sun put it, once every generation or so, a person or event becomes so famous, so universally known and talked about, that it crosses the line from history into folklore. We're familiar with that concept here on the program. That's where we live. And thus, we begin our journey. So this rhyme, no one really knows where it came from. The best rhymes are that way. The best folklore. I like to believe it just bubbled up from the highly repressed Victorian subconscious. Maybe. Maybe so. Spontaneously. I mean, it has been around for a very long time. So only 32 years after Lizzie's trial, the rhyme was well known enough to be included in Edmund Lester Pearson's true crime book, Studies in Murder, with the comment, One of these jingles which are never forgotten. Who invented it? Nobody knows, but everyone's heard it. So Lizzie was still alive, definitely, when this was being circulated. Oh, let's go back even further. The News Herald in Ohio on February 15th of 1894, and the similar story to this was published in other papers. A Boston lady who brings up her children very carefully and never allows them to see a newspaper found them on going into her nursery the other day singing. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 20 wax. Oh, well, that's that's closer to accurate. <laughs> After seeing what she'd done, she gave her father 21. It's catchy. It's funny that the numbers increase. <laughs> it's true. That is an odd thing. And they, they increase to a point, and then they're like, you know, more than that, just not believable. There's no way they did more than 41. <laughs> Max. Max damage. But, you know, no one really knows the true origin. Some people even say... That it was invented by a local journalist or by people hawking newspapers. Now that I believe. That makes a lot of sense. I've seen newsies. Those kids are creative. They sing all the time. And dance too. I want to see the original choreography. (laughs) It was fantastic. It is in fact based on a true story. It is. 
History. History. Herstory, as it were. So, Lizzie Borden was a 33-year-old spinster. Get your heads around that, people. A 33-year-old spinster who lived with her parents. So, kind of millennial, if you will. She was home on the day that her mother and... I'm sorry. Sorry, Lizzie. I apologize. Uh, her stepmother. Oh, she's going to haunt you. Her, oh, God, don't say that. Um, her stepmother and her father were discovered murdered. 40 wax. Not quite. Right. And she went to trial. She did. And eventually was acquitted. She was. And so, without a doubt, this story has gone into our popular subconscious, our pop culture, and our folklore. And she's been this lasting figure. Just in the last 50, 60 years, there's been so many productions of her story. Besides just written short stories and fictionalizations, there's been a ballet in 1954, really? Fall River Legends. 19, I mean, like, what yeah. do you think the hatchet looked like in that play? Like, do you think it was incorporated into the choreography? Oh, yeah, definitely. I want to YouTube this. Do-do-do-do-do, tink, tink, tink. And in 1965, opera, Lizzie Borden, and is an, I, updated, wait, as a rock opera. Oh, okay. I find neither of those things hard to believe. Now, there was a 1975 made-for-TV movie, The Legend of Lizzie Borden, which I watched. Oh, goody for you. It's awesome. It has Elizabeth Montgomery in it. Well, everyone knows that Darren was a blessed, blessed man. Oh, yes, he was. Side note, Elizabeth Montgomery, bewitch statue. Oh, in Salem. In Salem. How tasteless is that? Yeah, it kind of is. Maybe they'll make a Lizzie Borden statue. I'm sure they have one. At least a bust or something. But yes, Elizabeth Montgomery of Bewitched fame plays her in this made-for-TV movie. And it's actually, with a grain of salt, not bad. How many grains? A few. A few. Throwing okay. over the shoulder. Okay. All and right. A twitch of the nose. Okay. All right, now we're doing spells. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad we are giving people a a realistic portrayal of what this story is or what it became. Well, and recently there was a Lifetime movie with Christina Ricci. Who really likes playing crazy people. It's her wheelhouse. She's got it figured out. I mean, when you start with Wednesday. Oh, yeah. How are you ever going to shake that? It's still all I can see when I look at her. And of course, if you were lucky enough... You can stay at the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. Oh my gosh. That's really the house where the murders happened, right? Like, it's not the one she moved into later, not Maplecroft. Oh no, it's the real one. Okay, fantastic. And they have made it to look like it did at that era. Although I bet they added plumbing. I bet they did too. Andrew Wooden. Miser. Miser. His name was Andrew Jackson Borden. It says it all. It does. This was not built on ancient Indian burial ground, was it? Probably, as it is constructed in New England. You know, people come from all over the country to stay in this house where somebody, maybe Lizzie, killed Andrew and Abby, Lizzie's stepmother. And it is supposedly very haunted. And we did some deep research in this episode. We did. And we watched... Ghost Adventures, bro! Bro. Bro. Bro, I think it's a demon. It's a demon. A demon did it. A demon definitely did it. Did it. Yeah. But if you want to get drunk and watch something... (laughs) Which may or may not have been the procedure which we followed. Highly recommended. But you know, 
in that they have mediums come in and they talk about all the different ghost stories that have happened there and people getting their hair pulled and hearing voices and seeing things move. One thing I did think was interesting is there the the ghosts there like to mess with the cameras and I don't mean like make the photos not come out like not that but they like actually like touch them and things and move them that was one of the creepiest things we saw in that episode and so they're very techie ghosts they understand the concept of video recorders and that's good for them they're moving along with the times better than my parents because it's a demon oh you're right it's a demon it's a demon that possessed whoever killed the Bordens that's what Zach says Zach says everything's a demon and and also bro dude bro demon so people have reported the sounds of women weeping others claim to see a woman in victoria air clothing dusting the furniture straightening the covers on the bed okay so that's what abby was doing the morning of the murders she's reported to be dusting and going into the guest room to make up the bed oh but wait sometimes she does it while you're still in bed icky so don't sleep in you would not do well in this place. I would not do well in this place. I love to sleep in when I go to hotels and order room service and watch I Love Lucy reruns. It's it's a thing. People hear the sounds of footsteps, doors opening and closing, muffled conversation. What about thwacking? Do they hear thwacking? I bet they do. <laughs> I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. But the question we love to ask on this show is why are we still telling this story? Why has this gone from history and true crime into the realm of folklore? A couple of things. I think there's a lot of things. And one reporter that's from Fall River, Mass, states, I think the case has gotten so much attention because our proper Victorian ancestors couldn't fathom that someone among the upper class, especially a woman, could commit such a heinous crime. It's endured for the, those same reasons, and because it offers something for everyone today. History, brutality, mystery, the supernatural, and even sex. Sex. That's a weird one, but it's true. We'll get there. Oh, we'll get there. I mean, let's look at one of the obvious ones. We're just going to kind of go over a few. Like, she's a woman. Well, yes, she is a woman, and that's interesting because she's an outlier. She's not some, like, drifter. More than that, she's a good woman. And being a good woman, especially a good unmarried woman, meant really integrating and being part of your community at this era, at this point in history. And so she was kind of a pillar of the community. And her father had lots of money, lots of money. And, you know, she and her sister regularly attended church and everyone knew who she was. And was part of the temperance society. Of course she was. You had to be. All the coolest kids were. Maybe if she'd had a couple of drinks, she wouldn't have lost her shit and hacked her father to death. But whatever. But also, she wasn't just a woman. She was a high-class woman. Right. That's a major part of it. Because I don't think that this would have resonated as such a contradiction and such a stark example of cognitive dissonance had she been a local working girl. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. I know what you're saying. The paper's new, too. And also, you know, it's it's a gruesome, gruesome murder. Right. Abby was struck right, about the head and neck, is what the papers are fond of saying, with a hatchet. And the first blow was in her face, and the rest were on the back of her head. And I believe they're around 11. Right. So one clinical 
psychiatrist talking about this, there's this, this element of family violence, which was never anything anybody talked about. Well, yes, the skeletons were meant to stay in the closet, you understand. Yes, and this hatched up body was not staying in the closet. No. And while Abby's murder was gruesome, Andrew's was as well, there are reports that his eyeball was lying on his cheek when he was discovered on the sofa in the parlor. Mm, Doesn't this all sound very clue? Mm. So, Dr. Kim says that this reflects a key moment in our modern public consciousness about the reality of violence in private families. We start to be able to talk about it, and it is what is talked about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one element I mentioned that is important is there's still an air of mystery to it. You still have to take a side. It's funny, as I was researching this, I didn't find myself asking who else could have done it. I didn't find myself looking for alternate theories of the crime as I worked through all the court documents and all the newspaper articles. It's not what's most interesting. That's not the question. The question is, did she do it? That's what everyone wants to know. And... Another important element that Dr. Kim points out as well is that this is kind of a turning point. It definitely symbolizes that. You know, she said, Murders that stay in the public imagination often are bellwethers or signposts or precedents for key moments in our collective social consciousness. They are events that challenge the status quo for good and resist prior covering up of shameful repression. Or they shock societal norms confirm our worst fears about ourselves or reflect the anxieties of the era they occur in, which when we can look back upon with more objectivity. It's interesting. And I mean, I'm just kind of thinking through like some of the famous cases, some of the trials of the century that have been. And like some of the things that pop in my mind are like O.J. Simpson. And that really did represent a moment when we had to confront the lingering racism Oh, yeah, definitely. In America. Like, that really was what was happening. We were being forced to confront it and see, you know, things we really did not want to see. Mm-hmm. Like, and then you look back at things like the Salem Witch Trials, and you have that moment when we are moving to a more secular society against the will of everyone. You know, that there, this idea that there was this almost utopia to be had if we could just collect all the people who had the same values and put them in a pot together. A melting pot? Um, one no, might say. No, you don't want to melt them. You want to keep everybody. You just only want to use the organic squash, nothing else. Burn the rest. Burn the rest. Oh, okay. And then burn the ones that the squashes that sneak in that are not pure. <laughs> you can kind of chart these weird changes in culture and history like the Lindbergh baby. It's the idea that everyone's vulnerable or that violence is coming for you or that you're not safe in your own home and, you know, the world's becoming more urbanized and smaller. And you can chart these major cultural shifts by way of the crime that we take to be emblematic of the moment. Manson murders for the 60s and 70s. Right. That was the countercultural turning negative, turning into what everyone warned us would happen. Right. It was at the end of the summer of love and you end up with this horrible crime that is just exactly as people have been describing the potential negative consequences of too many hippies on drugs. And all these stories, including Lizzie Borden's story, go into public discussion. And that's really why they stick around, because everyone has that kind of discussion about it in the parlors and the pubs and the coffee shops. 
in the classroom, especially in the paper. And this was the rise. Oh, the rise we have talked about of yellow journalism. Dun, da, da. And this story was covered in all of the Victorian melodramatic writing that you could imagine. Oh, I've got some samples for you later, Sha. Oh, it's time? All right. I'm going to learn you about this murder. I have picked a doozy. So excited. For our first one. Headlines. For her life, Lizzie Borden must meet a charge of double murder. The great trial begins in Massachusetts court tomorrow. Some of the peculiar phases of the mysterious tragedy. Why suspicion attaches to the daughter of Andrew J. Borden. If she committed the deed, she is not only a monster, but one of the shrewdest of cunning criminals. The facts summarize. Oh my, I have to keep reading. New Bedford, Massachusetts, June 3rd. Lizzie Borden is 32 years of age and has hitherto led a respected life. Was identified with it within numerous religious movements and, according to the testimony of friends, was kind of heart and thoughtful for the comfort and feeling of others. Did this young woman split open her aged father's head with a hatchet as he lay sleeping on a sofa and afterward go back and batter his head and face with the same weapon that even the doctors who looked upon the hideous sight could hardly command their nerves? Did the same young woman, just after this deed, strike down her stepmother and chop and hack her head and face until it was beaten almost out of human resemblance? Did she do at least one of these horrible deeds within twenty minutes' time? Was she at the end of that interval able to appear to the neighbors? She had summoned without a spot of blood on her clothing, without a sign of derangement or hasty adjustment to her dress, with a weapon concealed beyond discovery, and not even a scrap of evidence to connect her to the deed left undisposed of could she could she did lizzie they say d but it's a borden do all of this and do it in broad daylight between ten thirty and 11 in the morning in a house close up to the sidewalk of one of the most frequented streets in town of eight thousand inhabitants a house closely elbowed and overlooked and surrounded by other houses with their windows and doors all open as it was a hot midsummer morning twelve men under the guidance of three judges and the misguidance of six lawyers are going to decide whether or not lizzie borden did all these things they begin their deliberation in this city at nine o'clock on monday morning next <gasps> the trial which begins here on Monday morning, is going to be one of the most memorable and criminal annals of New England. The finding of Miss Borden guilty would mean more than the branding of her as a murderess. It would mean that twelve men, after careful consideration of all that is said for and against her, believe her to be not only one of the most brutal monsters ever known, but that they believe her to be a woman in all respects, the most astonishing in point of self-command of which we have any record. Could 12 honest men truly feel that way about this poor, innocent woman? I don't think they're like, she's poor and innocent. I think they're like, she's either poor and innocent or a criminal mastermind, which I kind of think might be true. So they go on. Summing up the facts. The crime for which this young woman is to be tried was committed in Fall River on the morning of the 4th of August, 1892. It was committed between 10.30 and 11.15 o'clock, and the house wherein it was committed was and is still known as Number 92 2nd Street. 
It is in the heart of the town within two minutes' walk of City Hall. In this house, for many years, there had lived four people. Andrew J. Borden, Abby D. Borden, Andrew's wife, Emma L. Borden, and Lizzie Borden. The last two being the daughters of Andrew Borden by his first wife, who died over 20 years ago. On August 4th, when Andrew and his wife were murdered, Emma Borden was not at home. She was away in New Bedford on a visit, and hence is entirely eliminated from all consideration and discussion of the crime. Convenient. Right. She is the older of the two sisters, and Mr. Borden had no other children living. Leaving Emma out of the question, the general verdict on Lizzie, among those who know her, is not favorable. been brought up under hard, narrow lines of her father's character, and the making of money was the most solemn and imposing thing in life which her father had done ever since she could remember. While this had its effect on her habit of mind, she was yet capable of doing generous things and of taking an interest in the affairs of others, even to the extent of dipping into her purse. In the religious and charitable enterprises with which she liked to identify herself, she quite maintained her share of expense, and in the case of deficiency or extra expenditures, it was very frequently she who bore the expense. She was considered a strong-minded, resolute girl, however, not winning or gentle of manner, and her features and physique were rather heavy and coarse. That's not not nice. As to the exact state of affairs in the Borden household, there is a conflict of evidence, but Lizzie and her stepmother were not on cordial terms. There is no question. Lizzie always addressed and referred to her as Mrs. Borden. In former years, had hot words with her, not unfrequently. Hot words, you Mm. say. Between Lizzie and her father, on the other hand, there are many demonstrations of affection, as would be expected of two such people. The house was a cold and cheerless one, even under the most favorable circumstances, with an atmosphere of severe economy all pervading, and all things moving in narrow, sordid grooves. Borden and his wife lived happily enough, and between Lizzie... There were always kindly relations. The story of the discovery of the dead and horribly mangled bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Borden, of the calm account given by Lizzie of her own movements that fateful, that fatal day of August 4th, on her coolness of the fact that no stain of blood was found on her clothing, has already been told time and time again. To account for the latter fact, two theories have been advanced. One of those is that she stripped herself when she did the deed. Scandalous. Almost, if not quite, to a state of nudity. And the other is that she threw over herself some long, enveloping rubber garment, which thoroughly protected her clothing. Where'd she get that? I don't know. As for the first theory, it belongs to the category of the Boys Goby school of French novels. Oh, of course. I read that yesterday. Uh, French detective novels. I think maybe what Edgar Allan Poe based things on. You know Um, how he did that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. A hunch. And the second involves an almost superhuman skill in hiding the blood-stained garment. To say nothing of the blood-curdling coolness of the girl in doing such a deed and then dropping back without a ruffle and manner even a flush to her cheek into the regular humdrum of work and the usual idle chatter with a servant girl who is on familiar terms with the household. The whole affair is more like the work of a frenzied man or some person roused by hatred or thirst for revenge to the ecstasy of madness than it is to that of a murder from pecuniary motive. 
So far as has been revealed, the evidence made public, the main ground of suspicion against Lizzie Borden is the negative one, that nobody else could have committed the murders. As soon as the detectives had convinced themselves of this, they tried to find out some motive for the deed. What success attended their efforts in this direction will be revealed at the trial. At the preliminary investigation, rumors came to the surface, one being to the effect that Lizzie made a mysterious trip to Providence prior to the murder, and there consulted a lawyer with reference to her father's property. In the event of his death, there were rumors, too, of dissensions in the Borden household over property matters, and that Lizzie had manifested jealousy over the influence which her stepmother exerted over her father. In this respect, it was rumored, too, that Mr. Borden contemplated making a will whereby the bulk of his property would have gone to his wife, leaving the girls with a limited portion. Oh, that would not make her happy. Mm-mm. That Borden had been doing something to his will, or contemplated doing something to his will, there is little doubt, for in his pocketbook after death was found a little scrap of paper on which were memoranda bearing on the subject of testamentary disposition of his property. It may be put down to certainty that the prosecution will endeavor to establish impending change in the will as the motive actuating Lizzie to commission of the crime. What, if any direct evidence they may have, remains to be seen? But it will probably be found that they have next to none, and will rely on circumstances alone to establish this New England bred girl as a murderess who eclipses all other murderesses in the world. The usual weapon of the murderess is poison, and there will be an attempt to show that she attempted poison before she resorted to an axe. Before the murder, and the sickness was traced to some milk, which somebody thought Lizzie had thrown something into. Then, a drug clerk was found who said that a woman who answered to Lizzie's description attempted to buy persic acid from him just before the murder. What? There was even a belief prevalent at the time that both Mr. and Mrs. Borden were killed by prussic acid before the axe. That would be interesting. It is only lifeless bodies, according to the belief, whose heads the murderer chopped to pieces to divert suspicion away from the real cause of death which could more easily have been traced to the criminal. Careful examination of the murdered man and woman failed to reveal any trace of whatever prussic acid there might have been. Lizzie herself positively denied that she bought it or attempted to buy it. It will be one year on the 11th day of August since she was arrested, although from that time of the murder she has practically been under arrest. In August she was taken to Totten Jail, where for a while the confinement weighed heavily on her and she could not sleep. Her health has suffered from the imprisonment. She never had a good complexion, her face being inclined to a pasty sallowness incident to food such as the Borden type in New England are addicted to. The confinement has made her paler and somewhat refined the rather coarse and heavy outline of her face and figure. She'll be taken to New Bedford, and either her sister Emma or some of her friends will sit by her during the trial. It is a curious fact that while Lizzie Borden was never a very popular girl in Fall River, she now probably has more and warmer friends than she ever had before. Hanger-ons. Okay, pause. Yes. We need to unpack this shit. Let's unpack it. Okay, so it is August 4th, 1892. We are in Fall River, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. We are at the Borden Estate home. 92 Second Street. She calls neighbors over because her father has died, has been killed. She says to some father is hurt. 
She says to some father has been killed. She says to other father has been stabbed. Father is hurt by a bunch of hatchet wounds in his face. <laughs> I think he cut himself shaving, she says. So they come over. They're all in a, they're in a twirl. And they're worried about this, you know, hacked up, hatcheted, murdered body on the sofa. And eventually they send people upstairs to go get a sheet to cover the body until the undertaker and the medical examiner can get there. And upstairs they find another body. The body of her stepmother. Yes. Abby. Which is in the guest bedroom. Now, why was she in the guest bedroom? Well, her ghost is cleaning up up there. She had gone to clean up because Lizzie's uncle, Morse, had stayed there the night before. He had just happened by to visit. And so Abby had been upstairs tidying up the guest room when someone greeted her kindly with a hatchet to the face. So nice. So nice. So this is, this is the murder. But now we're getting to the trial and we're getting to the media coverage is where we, I really want to dig down and look at this because it tells you a little bit about why this was so gossiped about and so often repeated and circulated so widely. Right, the trial of the century this week. So they can't figure out who else could have possibly done it. So it must be her. I think there's just something so callow and awful about the way they wrote about her. I mean, that's how they always did it back then. Women, men, anybody, they were using physical descriptors to paint a picture of a dastardly villain or a hero. And they did it on both sides of the coin. Right, but like, though she never had a good complexion, like it's so bitchy. I guess that's what it is. Like it sounds like it sounds like an old woman huffing about somebody. Like I like how they're like she's been looking good since she's uh, lost a little weight in prison. <laughs> I mean, really? She must have been hitting the yard, <laughs> in the iron pumping. That's one thing you don't want Lizzie Borden to do. Take the blunt objects out of your hand, please. <laughs> Put them on the ground, miss. And there's a fascination with her. There's also a fascination with the brutality of the murders, as you've said. There right, was it's massively gruesome. I mean, there's eyes hanging out. They're just they're not just killed. They're mutilated. Did this young woman split open her aged father's head with a hatchet as he lay sleeping on the sofa and afterward go back and batter his head and face with the same weapon? I mean, that's graphic. Brutal. This is why the woman would not let her kids see newspapers. <laughs> Just saying. Today, they would be considered ill-informed. <laughs> but there was another report at the time that cited that despite the serious gore that accompanied the murders, the rooms in which both victims were found were neat and orderly, and there was no sign of a struggle or a scuffle. No scuffle. Are they cleaned up after themselves? No, they were dead. I meant the murderer. Like a maid? Not. (gasps) (sighs) She'd be good at it. I was actually shocked in reading the trial transcripts how little housework she did. (laughs) What did she do? She was like, do the shit that nobody else wanted to do. Like she. Thought that was the point of paying somebody. Like they were always like dusting or like everybody was doing housework all the fucking time. Lizzie was ironing her own shit the day of the murders. Abby cooked breakfast. She was dusting. Andrew emptied his own slops. Like, I mean, really? (laughs) A good Christian man does not abhor labor. Okay. No, that was that was something at the time. Like, you know, you had to kind of be self-reliant and kind of be able to do your own thing. Then why hire a live-in maid? That's a great question. <laughs> there was a lot of dust. It was very <laughs> dusty. Now, there was a little initial speculation that someone else may have done this. 
Who? A drifter? Yes, a Portuguese laborer. A foreign drifter? Yes, that's the one. No, that's always who they blame first. Yes, and he came by early in the morning and he asked for the wages that he was owed because Andrew owed him money because Andrew was a miser. This is going to be a recurring theme throughout all of the reports of this incident. Andrew did not like to spend money. He was Scrooge McDuck, but Victorian with the name Andrew Jackson. Like, does that give you an idea of the character we're working with here? And he wore a pinky ring. And Lizzie knew where his fault of swimming gold was. She did. She did, in fact. So maybe a Portuguese foreigner drifter, of course. Right. Uh, And he was told when he came by asking for wages that he would need to call later because Andrew didn't have any money at the time. So he was lied to. (laughs) He didn't want to go into his vault. Right. He had to swim later. Yes. And medical evidence in the original five minutes after the discoveries of the bodies stated that Abby was clearly killed by a man who was taller than she was. Because they would be able to, like, strike down at her head? Right. Okay. <laughs> but this Good is, job. This is my favorite. Was it for revenge, the paper asked. Lynn, Massachusetts, August 14th. A number of years ago, the Jefferson Borden, bound from a foreign port to this country, was seized by mutineers who claimed to have been cruelly treated by their officers. What is happening? This is random. Uh, wait for it. <laughs> And in the general struggle and confusion, the captain was struck with a marlin spike and killed. Oh my, this is brutal. The ringleaders of the mutiny, five in number, were overpowered and placed in irons. And when the vessel reached port, they were brought to the courts for trial. Two of them were Americans, two were British subjects, and one was Portuguese. No. Who claimed to be a subject of Queen Victoria. In the courts, the men told a fearful and pitiable story of inhuman treatment that forced them to the wildest desperation until they organized a mutiny and attempted to get control of the ship. Every man swore that in the general fight which occurred, it was absolutely impossible to have located the murderer. It was Marlin. Clearly, the fish just decided the guy needed to go. Definitely. By the aid of the English government, the three foreigners were either released or escaped with light terms of imprisonment. Not so with the two Americans. They were declared guilty by the courts and sentenced to death. But later, President Cleveland commuted their sentences for imprisonment for life in the state prison in Thomaston, Maine. The principal testimony which the courts took into consideration acted upon was given by a gentleman who was on board with his wife at the time and who was the principal owner of the ship. Against this man, prisoners long ago swore that they would have revenge. That man was Andrew J. Borden of Fall River. No. Who, with his wife, has gone down to death at the assassin's hands. The daughter's story of the two strangers about the house on the day of the murder seems to have no weight with the police, although it may later on, if it should be learned, that they were two of the five men who engaged in this mutiny. Up so, to- they, so are they saying that this guy might be one of the mutineers because he was Portuguese? No, because the American, no, he's just also Portuguese. I think it may be shorthand for foreign. So yes, he had wronged these sailors, and it is reported up to a year ago, a most strenuous effort was made by a man named Sullivan, prominent in the Atlantic coast, Seamen's Union, to secure the release the two men confined at Thomaston Prison. Petitions for a pardon were signed by all of the trade and labor organizations in the country and presented to President Harrison, and it is believed that the men were pardoned about eight months ago. If these men were released... And the fact can be established that they or any of their comrades were in or about Fall River 
on the day of the murder, it may mean the release of Miss Lizzie Borden. So wait, this is like 100% conjecture? Oh, yes. Thank God for Benjamin Harrison, everyone's favorite president. Who pardoned the swordfish-spearing mutineers after they were put in jail forever for trying to take over a ship while wielding swordfish. I think we're done. I think that solves it. Do you know how much I love this story? It's like a skit from the Muppets. It really is. On guard. So besides that ridiculous theory, let's get back to Miss Lizzie Borden. Um, so that lasted about two days. All of these like, maybe it was a marlin stabber. And then a man named Eli Benz. Eli motherfucking Benz opens his big fat yap. He saw the murder. No. Oh. He was working in a drugstore. The poison, you say? Mm-hmm. Now, he says that a woman, answering to Lizzie's description, came in and asked if I... So she was coarse features, poor complexion? Good. Yes. He was like, I would never have hit that. You're right. I saw one of those today. They're rare, you know, these women that I would not, like, tap. He's obviously a sexist asshole because it's 1892. Swipe left. Okay. So he says that... She came in and asked to buy prussic acid. And he's like, you can't buy prussic acid without a prescription. Wait, what was she going to do with it? Well, she says, or it was said that at the time by the woman who came into the shop, that she was going to use it to clean a dress that had been stained. With blood? No, it was before the murders. With blood? I don't know how much blood there was. Oh, there was blood. I can promise you there was blood. No, before the murders? No, I was joking. She was being proactive. Oh, planning ahead. I see. I yes, see. She was Boy Scout. This unravels and she loses some support, but it's still being written that from the consensus opinion, it can be said that in Lizzie Borden's life, there's not one unmaidenly nor a single deliberately unkind act. So she still has some people on her side. They're like, no, no, no. You don't understand. The prussic acid episode is relevant because it, you know, she did it the day before the murders. It might be like she was looking for an easier way to do it. Now, interestingly, the night before the murders, Abby and Andrew were both very sick. And Bridget claims that she had to go out and vomit in the outhouse the next day. Uh, from the milk. Yes. Or the broth. Or the bread or something. Something one consumes. And then in addition to Eli Bentz's damning testimony, or he's actually just talking to reporters at this point. No one's testifying anywhere. An account comes out. On August 6th, from George B. Fish. The Marlin Killer, as he's also known. And he doesn't kill Marlins. He heals with Marlins. No, yes. different fish. I'm sorry. Disappointed. His wife was Abby's sister. Okay. Got it? So he says, has published an interview that says he believes Lizzie Borden and John V. Morse concocted the deed and hired someone to do it. Lizzie and Emma Borden are stepdaughters of the murdered woman and have never been on good terms with her owing to the trouble over a division of small property left by the girl's mother to Mr. Borden, who gave it to his second wife instead of to the girls. That is something that's not thrown around much. No. The hired assassin. I like a the hired... Portuguese hired assassin. I like the hired assassin theory. It has some weight. It's an interesting idea. It's easier to stuff a dude in a cupboard than clean up your dress. What do you mean stuff a dude in a cupboard? Like if he was there... Like you go hide in the barn. Or the basement or the pantry. I mean, there are tons. I've looked at the floor plans. Or just plans. walk out the back door. He's covered in blood. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Hide in the loft of the barn. That's what I say. No one's looking at the barn. Everyone's looking at the bodies, right? 
Hell of a distraction. <laughs> so with such rumors and speculation circulating, she did hire someone. A top-notch defense attorney. It is reported here this morning that Miss Borden has made the assignment of all her personal property to her counsel with instructions to spare no expense in gaining her freedom. Miss Emma Borden has also given orders to spare nothing in the way of labor and expense. Mr. Jennings has given up his other legal work and is devoting every minute to clearing away this awful charge against his client. Wow. Right? One case. And he has a worthy opponent. William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> oh, no. Damn. Not quite. Damn. It's close. Almost there. A few more years. So it's reported Borden has three mighty clever men handling her side of the case. She needed them. For if all report to be true, District Attorney Knowlton is the most smooth and dangerous prosecutor in the state of Massachusetts. That, of course, makes it seem all the more strange that his case should have gone to pieces in court. You should see his whiskers. In the movie, they're fabulous. Oh, and the doodles in the paper, they're fabulous. I call them doodles because they do them fast. You know, they have to be quick courtroom sketches. Yeah, because they couldn't fix them after. So, you know, one of the big points of, like, contention or confusion is that lack of blood. That comes up again and again. And that's one of the first things that people try to address in popular accounts and at trial. And it's just very concerning. For example, in court testimony, a doctor who's a family friend, Dr. Bowen, is questioned about the appearance of Andrew's body when he first enters the home. And he's like, yep, packed pieces. And he's like, "What? can you describe the scene? And he's like, there's an end table with some books on it. And he's like, okay, did the books have any blood on them? He's like, nope. It seems like there would be a lot of splattering. Right. Brain matter, bone, tissue, blood, etc. Right? So that might actually lend some credence to the idea that maybe they were already dead, poisoned with prussic acid. It doesn't matter. If you're hacking at somebody, tissue's going to fly. It's really odd. Aliens. Aliens, they for sure. It. For sure. We've discovered it. The truth will out eventually. Demons. Oh, duh. Demons. God. How did I not think of that? Because you're not Ed Warren or Zach Bagans. Ah, oh, damn it. If only. But there are reports that... There were a number of bloodstains discovered on the bed near where Abby was found, as well as walls and the dressing case. An officer, describing his procedure as he went to examine the body, says that he then took hold of Mrs. Borden's body and found that she was lying in a pool of thick black blood. The space between the dressing case and the bed was so small that they couldn't actually move her body to like reveal more blood, so they actually had to move the bed. So they were not maybe being the most careful investigators. <laughs> Yeah, but now that I think about it, if she was in this kind of like small space, it would have contained the splatter. Now, that doesn't explain Andrew's body, who he was just in the parlor on the couch. But in that case, okay. Maybe. So what it appears happened is that she was struck in the face and the initial blow made her fall to the floor. Which one of the most interesting lines of inquiry explored during the trial was, if a woman that fat... Like, seriously, a woman that fat falls to the ground, does it not make a sound? It's like the tree question. Oh, my God. It's in the doctor's testimony. He's like, we know that she was quite a plump woman, quite a fat woman, little short fat woman. <laughs> How was she filling up that space? Oh, she filled it up quite nicely. Quite That's nicely. It's a quote. And, you know, they were never able to definitively prove that they had located a murder weapon, which was another problem. 
Right. They never found the axe or more likely the hatchet that was the murder instrument. You poking holes in the veracity of that rhyme? Maybe. Because it's all wrong. So these issues had already been reported out in the paper. Things like this. Little curiosities. Peculiarities of the case. And so when they went to try and find a jury... They could not find an unbiased jury. They had anywhere. a really hard time. They questioned. I counted, and I'm, my count may be a little off, but I think I'm close. 111 people were interviewed to find 12 jurors. So they have to pull them in from Alaska? Basically. I didn't know there were 111 people in Massachusetts at this time. I think that's how many people were in Alaska. And um, they were all Russian. They could see Russia from their house. It was Russia. Throwback. Now, there were rumors that there was much infighting among the jurors, but the papers seemed to think that they had a pretty sweet gig. When paper already told them who did it. The majority of the jurymen, they will have the comforting reflection that their labors are paid for at the rate of $3 a day, and food for the county is obliged to furnish the member of the jury with sleeping apartments and food until they are discharged from the duty by the court. Now, that's interesting. I did not know that jury sequestration was a thing back then, so I found that kind of interesting. And the papers at the time also report, like, they were allowed to say goodbye to their loved ones before they went off to do this great duty and service for their country. And they've been, you know, they're marched to their meals and marched straight back to their hotel rooms. And it's just such a tragedy. Can you believe such great honorable men. Honorable. Very, very honorable. So Lizzie is, other than the Portuguese sailor maybe, <laughs> she is really the only one they consider as a true suspect. And she's put on trial. She is. Now, in the beginning, they think maybe Morse might have done something. The uncle. The uncle. Who was coming to stay. He came to stay without real warning the night before. He was going to just stop by and end up staying the night. Sketchy. Yeah. And then he, you know, left early in the morning and kind of went and tootled around a bit. And Did maybe he have an some, alibi? Did people see him? He had an alibi, but it was his niece. And it was like, I, I question the veracity of the alibi. But I'm always skeptical, so I don't know how much of a vote I get. So what is pointing to Lizzie? What makes them think she's the one, she is the cold-blooded murderess? Well, for starters, she seems to know very little about her stepmother's whereabouts after 9 a.m. on the day of the murders. Hmm. But to be fair, they're both adults, and they both go about their business separately. They're not, like, running in the same social circles. You know, am I my stepmother's keeper kind of thing. And Lizzie says, around nine, when it put some shams on some pillows. And the other part of that story is that she says that she receives a note, and a note is sent to Mrs. Borden, stating that one of her friends is sick, and that Miss Borden needs to go attend to that. But the note was never found. She must have burned it up in the fire. We'll get to there. And then they didn't like her story of where she was while Andrew was being murdered. Looking for sinkers? Mm-hmm. So she could go fishing? Mm-hmm. Apparently. In the barn. Mm-hmm. Where the murderer hid. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that just, like, did not make sense to them. And they were like, the dust in the barn was undisturbed, as if it had been disturbed for weeks. That's actually good evidence. But a guy had been in there, like, a day or two before, like, fixing something. And he came and testified that he'd been in there fixing something. That's bad evidence. <laughs> 
And they were like, it was so hot that day. There's no way she went out to the barn and hung out. And I'm like, why wasn't it hot in the house? But it was only, it only reached 83 that day. Which... Oh, it was so hot. It was like 113 yesterday. Yeah. Texas. <laughs> and she says, like, along the way, she stopped to eat some pears. We'll come to the pears. I'm doing a whole section on pears in a little while. Don't worry. We're going to talk about pears. But they do bring up, like, you took 20 minutes to eat some pears. She's wandering around outside. Like, whatever. I'm not that skeptical of it. I'm more skeptical of the idea that she could somehow keep herself from getting blood on her. But they did have expert testimony. One leading physician explained that hacking is an almost positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she is doing. Right. A woman only kills by poison. Oh, wait, she was trying to buy poison. This is so confusing. (laughs) But a deed of a woman? Why is hacking the deed of a woman? Is this a penis envy thing? No, it's saying that only a woman not in her right mind would do this, I think. I think they're saying that women hack because they don't have penises, but whatever. No Freud in this episode. Fine. Okay. Now, here's a little caveat as we're to launch into Lizzie's contradictions and things. Dr. Bowen, same family physician who said there was no blood on the books, testified at trial that he might have prescribed, no he did, he definitely did, prescribe morphine for Lizzie at two times the normal dose for her nerves following the murder and that she was on this morphine while she was being questioned by police. Her story does change a little. She's like, I was out in the barn, I was looking for... And, like, the only consistent thing is lead. Like, at one point, somebody says that she was out looking for lead to fix my screen. Other people say lead sinkers. Lead. She's looking for lead. And then there's some other sketchy stuff. Now, Alice Russell was a good friend of Lizzie Borden. Let's put some emphasis on the word was. After her testimony, Lizzie and Emma cut off all contact with Miss Alice Russell because it was quite difficult testimony. I bet they spoke poorly of her at church. I bet they did, too. So she described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders. And she says that Lizzie told her that she was going to go on a vacation because she felt that, quote, something is hanging over me and I cannot tell what it is. And then she told her how her parents had had some kind of stomach problem. I feel afraid that something is going to happen. And she says that it must have been the baker's bread. Because it wouldn't have been from the house. That's something they purchased outside the home. And she didn't eat the bread, but everyone else did. And Alice says then everyone in town would be sick. Smart girl. Alice is a smart cookie. And she says, I feel that something's going to happen. You know, I wonder the, this, I think I might go on vacation thing. I didn't think of this earlier. Like, I wonder if she was setting up a, a run, a run for it. She could have just walked out and gotten in a carriage, though, instead of telling Bridget that, her dad oh, she thought she could get away with it. You know what I mean? Like, set it up and be like, I'm going to go on vacation. And then just, just I don't know, it may have, just thinking it may have crossed her mind. She's kind of setting it up. I think this is more what she's setting up. Let's continue to listen to the crazy ramblings that come from Alice. Oh, please. She told me she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear that somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Someone... So now Alice is going to give a big, big piece of kind of evidence or testimony that has gone down and is still one of the big like cruxes of people's theories about this. And that's the blue dress. No, that's Monica Lewinsky you're thinking of. Oh, the dress. What fabric was it? Can you tell me exactly the size? Oh (laughs) my God, y'all. There are like five 
hundred pages of testimony where the prosecutor questions not just Alice, but everybody. Like everybody. the doctor. <laughs> Every, like, no, what fabric was it? No, I'm sorry. I don't understand the difference between gingham and twall. Tell me again. Like, he's mad about it. He describes something as a bodice, and, the, and all the women are like, it is not a bodice. And he won't, like, quit using the wrong, he's using the wrong words to describe the dress. And he's like, forgive me, I'm a man. And I'm like, you're a stupid man. Learn the terms if you want Google to Google it, man. Google it. Ask a dressmaker. Get an expert. He does. I know. <laughs> He's obsessed with the goddamn dress. So, let me show you. About what time in the morning was it when you returned, Miss Russell? I don't know. Was it before noon? Yes, sir. Will you state what you saw after you returned? I went into the kitchen, and I saw Miss Lizzie at the other end of the stove. I saw Miss Emma at the sink. Miss Lizzie was at the stove, and she had a skirt in her hand. And her sister turned and said, what are you going to do? And Lizzie said, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It's covered with paint. Covered in paint? Is that the expression? I don't know whether she said covered in paint or covered with paint. Do you recall anything else said then? No, sir. What did you do then? I left the room. Did you speak to either of them at that time? No, sir. I don't remember that I did. I don't think I did. Did you come into the room again? Yes, sir. What did you see then? Miss Lizzie stood up towards the cupboard door. The cupboard door was open, and she appeared to either be ripping something down or tearing part of this garment. What part? I don't know for sure. It was a small part. A smaller part? Go on and state. I said to her, I wouldn't let anybody see me do that, Lizzie. She didn't make any answer. I left the room. Did you do anything when you said that? She stepped just one step farther back toward the cupboard door. Did you notice where the waist of the dress was when she held the skirt in her hands as you first came in? I didn't know that it had a waist, but I saw a portion of this dress up on the cupboard shelf. Inside the cupboard? Yes, the door was wide open. When you came back the second time and she was tearing the smaller part, did you see the skirt? Well, I'm not positive. I think I did. Did you have any more talk with her that day, or did she say anything to you about it? No, sir. At that time, were there any police officers at the house? No, sir. Were there any officers about the premises? Yes, sir. So she was burning and tearing this dress up because it had paint on it. Yes. And she used all of the poison so she couldn't get the paint out. Yeah, she couldn't use the prussic acid to get the paint out of the dress. Because so she, she poisoned her family with it. And st- no. whoops a dipsy No, wait, hold up. She couldn't buy the bath. She couldn't. Yeah, yes, yes. No, so she never got that. That we know of. She might have gone to a less ethical druggist who never came forward. I bet there was one druggist in that town. She could have gone two towns over. She had a carriage. Have carriage, will travel, as the saying goes. But then Alice goes on to say that she said, I'm afraid, Lizzie, the worst thing you could have done was burn that dress. I have been asked about your dresses. And what did she reply? She said, oh, what made you let me do it? Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> it's all your fault. <laughs> Miss Russell, you testified before the inquest, did you? Yes, sir. You testified at the preliminary hearing? Yes, sir. And you testified once and then again before the grand jury? Yes, sir. At either of the three previous times, at the inquest, at the preliminary, or at the first testimony before the grand jury, did you say anything about the burning of this dress? No, sir. Why not? Slipped her mind. Just didn't think of it? No. No. Okay, and then 
because we're on the burning things wagon, she's asked to describe what took place the day of the homicide when Dr. Bowen came in to ask Lizzie something. And she says, When we were in the dining room, Lizzie was lying down, and I think Dr. Bowen came in. I always thought it was Dr. Bowen came in and said, Lizzie, do you know anything about the note your mother had? And she hesitated and said, Well, no, she didn't. And he said, I have looked in the wastebasket. And I think he said, No, he said, Have you looked in her pocket? And I think I said, well, then, she must have put it in the fire. And Lizzie said, yes, she must have put it in the fire. It's a great idea. You're right. <laughs> the note that is my alibi. It must have burned up on accident. You're correct. And Thank then you. the dog ate it. And then he gave her a giant dose of morphine. <laughs> and then just a bit more of Alice's colorful testimony. She says, Lizzie told her, I feel afraid sometimes that father has got an enemy. He has much trouble with men who come to see him. And she told me of a man that came to see him. She didn't see him, but she heard her father say, I don't care to let my property for such a business. And she said the man answered sneeringly, I shouldn't think you would care what you let your property for. And she said father was mad and ordered him out of the house. She told me of seeing a man run around the house one night when she went home. I've forgotten where she had been. And she says, and you know, the barn has been broken into twice. And I said, oh, well. That was somebody after the pigeons. There's nothing in there for them but to go after the pigeons. Well, she says, they've broken in the house in broad daylight. And Emma and Maggie, that's what she calls Bridget because it was the last maid's name. Oh, sweet. (laughs) And me there. And I said, I never heard that before. And she said, Father forbade me our telling it. So I asked about it. And she said it was in Mrs. Borden's room, what she called the dressing room. And she says her things were ransacked. And they took a watch and chain and money and car tickets and something else I can't remember. And there was a nail left in the keyhole. And she didn't know why that was left, whether they got in with it or what. I asked if her father did anything about it. And she said he gave it to the police, but they didn't find anything. And she said her father expected that they would catch the thief by the tickets, she remarked, just as if anybody would use those tickets. So apparently Alice goes back and forth. And she's like, well, the house had been broken into that one time, or either Lizzie's been playing in this for a while, kind of, I think, is what the implication is. And then she's very dubious over the burning of this dress. Why would you burn a dress that had paint on it? Right, I mean, could you use it for something else? Wash rags, you could, whatever. But I guess Lizzie... alter it. (laughs) Oh, my God. And he's like, when did she get the dress? Who made the dress? How long had she had it? What fabric was it? Him and his goddamn dress. He will not leave it. So Alice's testimony is some of the most compelling and interesting testimony that's offered. But my favorite thing that happens in the case is whenever the prosecutor pulls the most like melodramatic thing one can do straight out of Shakespeare. No, it's a straight out of Boyscoby. <laughs> You're right. And he's got the dress out in the courtroom and he's giving his opening statement implicating Lizzie saying what a dastardly villain she is and he pulls the dress back to reveal the skulls of her dead father and dead stepmother so this is must we remind you again the gilded age the victorian age the edwardian age that moment of confluence and there's nothing for a woman to do when the skulls of her dead parents are revealed in a court of law. To swoon. She swoons. She does. And this paper's report, into a faint that lasted for several minutes, sending a thrill of excitement through the awestruck spectators. 
and causing an unfeigned embarrassment and discomfiture to penetrate the ranks of the council. Well, in the Golden Globe nominated movie that I saw, whenever he reveals the skull, before she swoons, I know this is what happens in real life. They like go, does the hatchet fit the wound in the skull? And then they like take the hatchet and like place it and like strike the skull. I think they did do a little measuring with some of the supposed maybe kind of hatchets. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing about the hatchets is that one of the ones they found that they thought most closely matched the wounds had the handle broken off of it. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. You can burn a handle. Or you can break it. Whacking your family a hundred times. No, but you, if you broke it off, you could burn it like your dress and like the note and like everything else that mm-hmm. seems to implicate Lizzie in this. Kindling. Show. Of course. Of course. Lizzie is watched just with great scrutiny throughout the course of the trial. And here's just a, a little poo poo platter of some of the coverage. So on one day where they had to go and have like a little sidebar about some evidence they wanted to put in. The paper still needed to report something. (laughs) And this comes from that day. The crowd didn't see her. Hours tilt in secret between the opposing counsel. An odd scene in the court. The unwashed were out of it. A great scramble for the place. The meaning of the delay. The prisoner's journey from Taunton. She will remain in Fall River Police Station until Thursday. Her bearing, a day of disappointment for the curious. How the audience was silenced, but tongues get a new wagging license. Chemist and microscope to tell story. Oh, I can't wait. The microscope's gonna talk. The prisoner accepted the events of the day with much better grace than did the public. She didn't swoon. (laughs) She escaped the crush of curiosity of the mob, looked well, ate well, and seemed to feel quite as strong and as much cheerful than at any time since that fatal Thursday when she summoned Bridget from the attic by the startled cry, Father is hurt. She must have got triple dose of morphine that day. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good-looking crowd, which gradually took possession of all the available seats and formed a hollow square with the judge, lawyers, and newspapermen at the center. The real old ignoble vulgars did not even get a chance to fight its way upstairs. They, the crowd that haunts the police court week in and week out, formed in solid determined array in court square and waited with ill-dignified impatience. Meantime, the more respectable people at once more genteely clad and genteely curious. I want to be genteely curious. I think that's what we do. Dittered? Dittered. Through I want the, to ditter too. <laughs> through, the, through the picket line, which the marshal had placed in the corridor and on the stairs and established themselves within the courtroom. So, good news, folks. The real old ignoble vulgars did not make it in the courtroom on this day. So we've got full courtroom. We've got Lizzie there looking good, happy, smiling, swooning. Right. Well, this being aghast. Well, whatever she was doing that day, it was news. For example, with a smile, Lizzie Borden faces judge and jurors. No trace today of the emotion shown in court last evening. Hysteronics. The prisoner showed no trace of the ordeal through which she passed yesterday when she swooned away in public as public prosecutor Moody closed his address, arraigning her as the author of the murders. From 
Middle to end of the opening address, Miss Borden leaned back in her chair and never moved a muscle. She put up a fan to her face and, holding her head forward, pressed it close against her forehead and held it up there. And then one day, Lizzie's coolness, subheadline. It is astonishing to note the coolness of the accused as several witnesses testify. At no time since the trial commenced has she lost her self-possession that characterized her throughout the blood-curdling description of her ghastly sight that met her the eyes of witnesses in the Borden house. So she was either too happy or not happy enough or too cool or swooning too much. Right, and they point out, they're like, Emma's crying. Why isn't Lizzie crying? Emma cries every time she says that somebody hacked her father's face off and Lizzie just sits there. Do you think her lawyers told her to smile more because she looks pretty? <laughs> Honey, have a pair and some morphine and get a smile on your face. Get a smile, you look good. Uh, Got that prison weight loss system going. We should market this. Get me that snake oil salesman over here right now. But public opinion about the family had grown kind of stark as well. One report has it. It has been proved beyond question that the Borden's home life was not at all what would be expected in a family whose debts were paid and whose wealth was more than half a million. Warmed over mutton was frequently served and fruit was now and then on the table. The daughters did not dine with their father and mother and thus have not been shown to have asked about their mother's health after a dangerous sickness. Right, because that did kind of go down paper. We kind of mentioned it a little bit, that he was really a miserly guy, like wealthy, kind of independently wealthy. I mean, he had a boat. But he didn't like to spend his money on the house, which did not have indoor plumbing. No. I bet it does now. (laughs) Or like on clothing for Lizzie or sister... No, he wanted to, he was Scrooge McDucky. He really, really was. And he would like tell people he'd pay him later and beg off paying people for things they'd done for him. And he went to the bank every day to check up on things. Like he was very, very tuned in to financial merit. So with all of this in the papers, what are people saying? I mean, are they on our side? Do they think she did it? What's going on? What's running through people's minds? Overwhelmingly. As the trial goes on, public opinion is that she's innocent. It's so odd when you look back at it from modern times when almost everyone's like, she did it. I know. I was really surprised to find this. Okay, so I don't know if you know this. It's important It's important for our, our listeners, too. When I was in eighth grade. Yes? You killed your family? You've met my family. I don't know if they're your second family. I couldn't get a second family. No one would want me. But when I was in eighth grade, we did a mock trial. Of Lizzie Borden? Yes. <laughs> I don't know this, actually. I was the prosecutor. No, I'm sorry. I was the lead defense attorney. Excuse me. say, did you have skulls? <laughs> no, I was the lead defense attorney. And I won because I'm awesome. And I'm still mad because the prosecutor in our mock trial strows up there on day two. With a skull? Dress. Ah. <gasps> Really? <laughs> like a blood-stained dress that they tried. I was like, then you cannot. I object. I object. It was burned up. She burned it up. She has since. Like, it was, I still get mad when I think about it. I was like, that's not the script. You can't do that. But the great thing about it was, like, we could call anybody who testified at the trial as a witness. And I figured out that if you were like, did you kill him? They had to say, I plead the fifth. <laughs> Because they couldn't answer it accurately from the evidence. You're ridiculous. So yeah, I got Lizzie Borden off for murder. But anyway. Seems about right. 
But yeah, even when I was her defense attorney, I totally thought she did it. But this was not the sentiment at the time. Can Lizzie be guilty? Headline. Let those persons who assume that Lizzie Borden is guilty consider these points. The heads and faces of Mr. and Mrs. Borden were so chopped and hacked that they were beaten almost out of human semblance. If Lizzie is guilty, she must have killed her father within 20 minutes and then appeared before the neighbors without a spot of blood on her clothing and without any sign that she had hastily adjusted her dress. In that time, she must have also concealed effectively, so effectively that it has never been found, the blood-covered murder weapon with which the deed was committed. And she also disposed of every scrap of direct evidence that would connect her with a crime. I'm back to the blood again. That's like the thing that really does like make me go. Yeah, I mean, we keep talking about it. Like, it's hard to say where the blood go, where the splatter go. And like, why wasn't her, why wasn't she covered in it? Was she naked or was she wearing a giant rubber suit? I mean, in the movie, she was naked. Well, that makes for a good movie. If I'd seen that when I was 13, I would have been really excited and then horrified. (sighs) She murders her dad while she's naked. She doesn't do anything cool. I said then horrified. Okay, well, as long as you were horrified appropriately. I mean, you see Samantha's back. Oh, Samantha from Bewitched. Yeah. Not me. I've seen your back. Yeah, well, (laughs) once or twice. Okay, so she was naked or she wore a rubber suit. These are the two leading theories. Now, while I could change in 20 minutes, I don't wear petticoats. Like, it would have been a little bit of an ordeal to, like, go through the, all the lacing and unlacing and dressing. And, you know, like, there was a lot going on with a, a woman's dress at this moment. Well, she wasn't necessarily wearing, like, a formal dress. But it still would have had, like, an underskirt and a overskirt and an apron and a... You probably would have had 20 minutes. Yeah. You just enough time. But <laughs> her hair. Her hair. Put it up. Put a scarf over it. Put a bonnet over it. That's not that crazy to me. Like, that... Has less weight than the no blood splatter. Because you just put something over your hair. It's not that big a deal. And then you burn it. You burn everything. That was the small piece of fabric. And she was tearing up. And she was ironing her handkerchiefs that day, too. Handkerchief wouldn't cover your head. You don't know. I know. I know what a handkerchief looks like, sir. But they go on to say, Lizzie Borden wore a blue dress when the neighbors entered the house and found that her father and stepmother were murdered. In two rooms, blood from the murdered ones had spattered and spurted over everything and many feet about the dead bodies. See, in this one, there is blood. In the minds of authorities, there was never any doubt that the murderer of Mr. and Mrs. Borden was smeared and splashed with blood. With the exception of a single drop of blood the size of a pinhead on her white underskirt, not a speck of blood was found on the clothing Lizzie wore before or after the murder. That being the case, Lizzie being the murderess, she must have killed her stepmother about 10 o'clock and spent the interval between that hour and the time she killed her father in calmly attending to her household duties. Bridget testified that during that period, Lizzie chatted and joked with her. So what do you say to that? What do you say that she like to the fact that she could just come down from murdering Abby and go on as nothing happened? She was a sociopath. She was not a sociopath because she did not torture animals. She was actually a major donor to the Humane Society. So clearly. Or she was making up for all the tortured animals. <laughs> okay, I'm actually going to say that's a good point. <laughs> it's a point. It is a point. <laughs> <laughs> as the prosecutor had a few. But wait for it. The prosecutor has another point. Oh, please. He asked the judge to forget that the defendant is a woman and treat her as a man. 
I mean, that's an important thing we'll talk about later. Is that this this well, it was a big deal? It was a big deal that a woman was being tried for this heinous of a crime. So, Governor Robinson, one of Lizzie's attorneys, who is the former governor, began by declaring that a defendant would be physically unable to commit a crime in the manner that this had been committed. But aside from that, it was only possible for a maniac or a devil to do it. He asked the jury to bring their homes hearts and intellect into the decision of the case. There was no direct evidence against Miss Borden, he said. No weapon whatever, no knowledge of the use. Evidence shows the defendant did not know where the alleged weapon was kept. So they found these hatchets. They found like six or eight hatchets down in the basement. Yeah, because you'd have some. I mean, you use a hatchet. Right. It would not be weird for me to have a hatchet. I think you do, don't you? No. But I could, like, I mean, just like, it wouldn't be weird. You'd use it just for yard work or anything. Yeah, and they actually did, like, have a guy come chop wood. His name was Alfred. He was not Portuguese. That they know of. He was Swedish. Oh, well, neutral party. But they had a guy come chop wood, and he would use those to split the logs down from bigger to smaller. We're in the cellar where, like, he would enter. He had a way to get into that part of the house. Like, he had a key to get in from the outside to the cellar. But... He's making a, an important point, and probably one that you made as a prosecutor as your eighth grade self, is that this evidence and this testimony is all circumstantial. Right. There's no proof. You're just looking at her under a microscope and taking every, I mean. Even talking about her facial expressions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not the court, but in the court of public opinion. Oh, no, they definitely did talk about her facial expressions. They're like, did you see Lizzie cry after the murders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like her emotional state. Yeah. They're like, if she didn't cry, she's not a woman. <laughs> I mean, she's she murdered him. And then Bridget, you know, brings up the thing like, oh, I never knew anything about a note. But then she, like, accidentally slips in her testimony and she says that, like, when she sees Lizzie, they're talking about her father being murdered in the parlor. And she's like, oh, oh, I would go to Mrs. Whitehead's and get Mrs. Borden if I knew she was still there. Oops. Corroboration. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So either Lizzie was specific enough about the note to say to her, it's Miss Whitehead, and risk being found out. And Bridget is? The maid. Right. Or Bridget saw the note. Hmm. Got sloppy in her testimony. Right. And then they point out that she was seen by both her father and Bridget after Mrs. Borden was killed, but before Andrew was killed, which means that there would be two sets of bloody clothes. She would have had to wear something to murder Abby, take it off. Or she was naked. Or she was naked, but it would have been two cleanups, and it would have been getting dressed twice and twice as much time, and the timeline didn't really allow for that that quick change unless she had like a rip away victorian dress like snappy pants you never know and then they brought up that there was no blood in her hair because everyone was like patting her and fanning her and like putting cold compresses on her head and stuff because she's gonna swoon she's definitely gonna swoon after the murders happen and no one saw blood in her hair and we've already heard your handkerchief story it's my theory it's a point and they like for a minute for a minute they thought maybe maybe they had found the murder weapon and maybe it had some blood on it but they just didn't have the scientific testing to back that up I'm like no shit we didn't have let's do some dna no but they say it at the time they're like if only if only we could prove where's grissom 
And CSI. I will say that the forensics done for this case were very impressive for the time. Like, what do you mean? They ignored fingerprinting. Fingerprinting existed at this time, and especially in France, speaking of. And they didn't do it. And it was brought up as an option. Well, that's hoodoo and witchcraft, and we have to hang people who do things like that in Massachusetts. Aww. Aww. But when I when they were autopsy, I was actually impressed with the autopsies, which is a weird thing to oh, say. Oh, hey, you didn't let me read them. I'm so disappointed. Oh, there was nothing on them. Oh, because boo. there was nothing on them. This all comes out in court testimony. It says they died of shock. I'm going to say that's wrong. <laughs> shock from being beaten about the head and neck with a hatchet or axe question mark half right they examined their stomach contents and they found that if they had a meal together andrew's stomach had food that was more thoroughly digested than abby's and he had matter in his lower intestine and she didn't i don't know about that it's actually how they do it now it's how you establish time of death now you don't read enough books about coroners no i'm thinking just like I don't know. I mean, like, it's, I don't know how sophisticated their technology was. I'm not going to go spend a day looking into that. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Victorian poop detection. Or pass. <laughs> the thought was that because the contents of Andrew's stomach had liquefied and there were still recognizable pieces of fruit, which in the testimony, they're like bits of apple and prosecutor's like no no could it have been pears like lizzie was eating like everyone was eating we'll get to the pears we're gonna get to the pears i have a whole section of pears the forbidden fruit are they no one knows let's do an episode on the forbidden fruit one day i'm down so there was tons of contradictory evidence given at trial he would call them he'd be like what time did you see the person and they'd be like 10 15 he's like are you sure it wasn't 9 15 and they're like no i'm sure <laughs> it happens all the time throughout all the testimony did you lock the door i'm sure you locked the door i didn't lock the door shit like everyone just kept screwing the prosecutor over and he called too many witnesses he got his, his narrative got too broad like, it's your problem very easy to see where he went wrong and he would hammer points and he would hammer points until people started changing their stories like he was trying to fuck up Nobody could follow what he was doing. The trial transcripts are a mess. Like, it's all over the place. And I have to think he was in some sort of mental decline because it was just very hard to follow. And I'm sure as a jury, day in, day out, it was very hard to follow as well. You're like, screw it. She's innocent. (laughs) Can we go home now? Eat your gruel and march back to your room. Take your $3. In addition to the morphine issue, there was also... The small issue of Lizzie not being advised of her Fifth Amendment rights before she answered questions at an inquest. Oops. Yeah, so that testimony was excluded. And then the defense called some witnesses that really started to poke holes in the theory that no one else was around. Um, They called Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby, which is an amazing name. And they said that they had seen a strange man lurking around the Borden home around 11 p.m. on the 3rd of August, the day before the murders. And then Dr. Benjamin Hanfey testified that he saw, quote, a pale-faced young man near the home around 10.30 on the 4th. Hmm, interesting. And the defense attorney put forward the idea that he may have been a lookout for whoever was going in to commit the murders. The hired assassin. Right. Or the stranger 
definitely a stranger, probably a Portuguese drifter. Definitely. I don't think that they tested the wounds against a marlin spike. I don't think the forensics were there yet. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thank you. Just giving you my medical opinion. Now, Emma did testify. She said that Lizzie and Andrew had a very close relationship. Hmm. But during her testimony, she also admitted that she had had some serious resentment toward her stepmother, Emma. So, yeah, there's a lot of talk about the dad. Right. And their relationship on both sides of the coin. So they tried to prove that they had a close relationship to say a daughter would never kill her loving father. And that she had given her dad this ring that she cherished to show how much that she loved him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, I think he wore it on his pinky and it was on his body the day he died. But then there's the pigeon story. Oh, the pigeon story. That... After the boys are breaking into the barn to steal the pigeons. Which Lizzie mentions to Alice Russell, the blabbermouth mm-hmm. of Fall River. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't and, tell her secrets. Mm, no mm. vault. No vault. That her father then figures out a brilliant way to solve the problem. Right. You know how you keep neighbor boys from breaking into your barn to steal your pigeons? Take everyone's favorite weapon in this story. Hatchet. A hatchet. And just don't kill Murder the, bo- them. Not the boys. No, no, no. The pigeons. <laughs> right. Murder them. Kill all the pigeons. Boom. Problem solved. But you know what? Cherami is up in heaven pecking Andrew's eyes out. So yes, she and her father had an interesting relationship. And of course, as things like the satanic panic and things of that nature set in. You start to get the incest stories. Yeah. Which they definitely allude to in that movie. Which was before satanic panic. I know. I know. It's just, I think it's interesting because everywhere you read, they say it kind of comes up in the 80s. But in this movie made in 1975, it's there. It's there. That story is there. Oh, definitely. I think it may have come up earlier in this story, in relationship to this story, than in the rest of popular culture, because it's really the only real justifiable homicide thing you can come up with. If there's a reason, it's better than money or other things. Right. But Emma admitted during the trial that she actually had this lingering resentment because her father had transferred a Fall River home that had belonged to her grandfather or her mother's family to Abby instead of to her and her sister. And that's what was alluded to in the initial piece I read. And there was, you know, there were hurt feelings about that, but hurt feelings don't always lead to hatchet faces. They don't? No. Oh, okay. I've had my feelings hurt before. I've never hatcheted anyone. That you know of. You're right. I might have done it in a fit of blind woman rage. Very true. So in closing, in the trial, Jennings argued that there's not any particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There's not a spot of blood. There's not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape or fashion. True. True. And so after the verdict was rendered, which took only an hour to reach. I'm so tired of this. She was pronounced not guilty and she let out a cry of relief and then sank into her chair and then she hid her face in her sister's arms and announced now take me home i want to go to the old place and go at once tonight so she returns to the murder house why not because it's the root of all evil because demons live there now there are some other controversies about this story yes there are some other characters that come up that we have not discussed yet that throw a few kinks in the story, one may say. So Bridget Sullivan. The Irish maid. She's literally from Ireland. 
That's why I said she was the Archmage. Context clues. She's kind of a hot mess on the stand. Like, I mean, she she cannot keep her shit together. And I don't mean like she's crying or anything. Like, she just can't remember what she said last. Her story is all over the place. Yes. So, for example, early in the questioning, they're like, who was in the house? Like, who who lived in the house? Very basic question, right? One would think. And Bridget's like, myself, Miss Lizzie, Miss Emma, Mr. Borden, and Mrs. Borden. And sometimes Mr. Morse. And they're like, what? What? Who? Mr. Morse. Who's that? The uncle. The creepy uncle. Creepy uncle. And she'd be like. Did he sit around with his shirt unbuttoned and his underwear? Yes. No. And she's like, well, he stayed over sometimes. And they were like, which room did he stay in? She's like, the guest room, except when he stayed in the room by my room. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is another moment when the prosecutor is like, wait a second. I'm guessing they didn't do depositions, though. They did. She. This is the fourth time she's testified. No. And she's really bad at it. She just can't keep it straight. And she can't remember who let him in. She can't remember what they had for breakfast. And she's very insistent on her memory throughout the story. But then defense attorney gets a hold of her. And he's like... The door was locked all morning. And she's like, yes, it was locked all morning. He's like, even when you went outside to wash windows and knew you were coming back in. And she's like, well, well, not then. He's like, how long were you at that? And she's like, a couple of hours. I just forgot about that. Okay. All right. <laughs> and then he's like, are you sure you fastened the lock when you came back in from vomiting in the outhouse? And she's like, yes, I'm sure I locked it. And he's, how do you know? And she's like, because I always locked it. And he's like, but you were vomiting and sick and nauseated and are you sure? And she's like, well, I can't be totally sure. I might, I might not have. And then there's that lovely moment when she's like, I would go to Mrs. Whitehead's house if I knew that, uh, I mean, there was no note. No, 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 no. And she mentions Alfred. Who's Alfred? Alfred. That's the woodchopper. Yeah. But she says that he would sometimes sleep in the third floor with her on nights where he had to stay, but he didn't stay often. She's kind of introduces a weird character to the mix, kind of out of nowhere. And one of the things that she says that's so kind of out of left field is that when Andrew comes home from his rounds, he goes out in the morning, goes to the banks, checks on his money because he loves it, does a little swimming in his gold, comes home, and he tries, he has his key, and he tries to get in the front door, but he can't get in the front door. It's stuck. Hmm. And so she has to go and unlock the door. And this is the story that unfolds. One thing stood out in this morning's testimony with dramatic impressiveness, and that was the strange way in which Bridget heard Lizzie Borden laugh merrily when she went to the door to let Mr. Borden in. According to the witness, she found the door tightly barred and locked, and uttered an exclamation of impatience at which Lizzie, upstairs, laughed aloud. At the moment she laughed, if the medical men are right, Miss Borden lay in the next room to her, horribly butchered. Everything about the case is strange. It was strange to see Lizzie Borden's face working when she came into the courtroom, as before, upon the arm of Pastor Back, not leaning, because she strods in firmly and freely and needed no support. The curious habit of biting at the sides of her mouth is growing upon her apparently. The impression it gives is not pleasant. The painful topic of Lizzie's untimely laughter was the only weak point in Bridget's armor. Mr. Adams asked what the expression was which she used when she went to the door and found it bolted. She hemmed and hawed and finally said with embarrassment that it was, Oh, Bashaw. <laughs> Sounds like my grandma. Mm-hmm. The defense is said to know that it wasn't, Oh, Bashaw, but an exclamation much more profane. Motherfucking door. <laughs> At one point in the proceedings, Mr. Adams, who had followed Bridget's career since she was born in Ireland, 
asked whom she had seen last night. She had seen District Attorney Knowlton. Did he show her anything? Yes. He showed her a piece of paper with something typewritten upon it. She did not know what it was. He read a few words of it, but she did not understand it. No, it was not anything she was to testify to today, and she did not think it referred to any testimony she had previously given. The defense here scored its first point, leaving a vague sort of impression that somebody might be trying to coach the state's witness. Mr. Adams made an objection when the district attorney brought up the subject of the mysterious note from a sick friend where Miss Borden is said to have received. Bridget said, when she went out to the back door on some household errand that morning, Lizzie came to the door after her and asked if she was going away. I said I might and I mightn't. Then Lizzie said she would hook the door because she might go out herself, and her mother had gone away because she had got a note from a sick friend. Lizzie didn't say from whom. So you see Bridget testifying there that she didn't know who she was going to see, and then later volunteering the name of the person without being asked. Credible witness. Right? Right? And you also hear her saying that she had said that she might go out, even though she was vomiting, and charged with washing all the windows inside and out by Mrs. Borden. So she is losing credibility quickly. So why is Bridget such a bad witness? This begs the question, right? Because she did it. Because she was in on it? Maybe. You know, one theory that's come out at the time (laughs) and has gained some traction, maybe, is that her and Lizzie were lovers. Lizzie's? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Scandalous. Scandalous. Special friends. Oh my goodness. Okay, so... Bridget and Lizzie are having a clandestine love affair and they must murder the people who stand in their way because why not? Well, I mean, they get all the money out of it. That's true. And they could go on living their satanic ways. So clearly demons. Lesbian demons. Lesbian demons. Okay, so Bridget and Lizzie were having a love affair. and Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe, maybe... Lizzie was just like, hey, Bridget, I'm going to do this thing. I'll totally pay you off. And she was like, okay, I hate that bitch. She made me wash the windows on the day I was vomiting in the outhouse. Let's do this shit. So maybe Bridget was in on it. Some people think maybe Bridget did it all by herself, but come on. I don't know about that. I don't either. Like, it comes back to the same round of questions about Lizzie. Like, where's the blood? Where's the weapon? Where's the so many things? So many things. Yeah. And if they took turns killing. Oh, that's interesting. That would make the timeline fit. But again, all conjecture. No proof. No proof of anything in this case. So let's conjecture some more. We have the other weird, creepy uncle. I I go back and forth on Morse. So when I was reading through the trial transcripts, something that caught me was his description of the lock on the front door. The one that was locked and then not locked. No, that was the one in the back. That was a screen door with a hook. This was the front door. Clearly a different door. We have established that through 75 fucking pages of questions about doors. Good. Really dense reading. Front door where Andrew came and it was like he had his key but he couldn't get in. Where Bridget said Opashaw. She didn't say Opashaw. Oh, with a fucking door. (laughs) So he's being questioned by the prosecutor. I will ask you whether you observed anything in the use of the front door in regard to the spring lock, Mr. Morse. Yes, sir. What is that? State it plainly so he can hear you. You do not speak quite loudly enough, if you will let me say. Well, if you shut the door hard, the spring lock would catch. If you didn't, it would not. If it did not catch, 
then you could open it without any trouble. Push it or turn the ordinary knob and it would come right open. And when did you notice that? That was after the tragedy. Did you specifically examine it to see about that? Was your attention called to it? It was not called especially to that. I went to try the door and it was unfastened and I found afterwards by slamming it hard it would catch. And if you didn't, it would not. And I took the lock off, had it fastened back so it would catch, and a new one was put on while I was there. A new one was put on? I had it put on. And do you recall now that the old lock is there and the new latch also? Yes, sir. Are you referring to the one that was on August 4th and did not work? So Morse, of his own volition, noticed that the door wasn't locking properly and had a new lock put on it. Just a nice guy. Helpful. Maybe. And my thought is maybe it was broken by somebody trying to get into it or block it so nobody could get in. Like maybe it was tampered with and he did just notice it or maybe he was covering something up. Like, I don't know. But that struck me as really odd that he just by happenstance noticed that the door wasn't locking properly, which I guess if you're if you think strangers have broken into your brother-in-law's house and murdered him and his wife and your nieces are there, you, you might you might want to lock on, on further self-reflection. I've, I've decided it's not that weird. But the fact that it's not working properly is weird. Because it could have been done in the breaking into or blocking out of or putting a nail in the door. Right. Pigeon thieves. Could we call them pigeon rustlers? Yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. Now, what is Morse, the creepy uncle's alibi? Well... He went to visit his niece and nephew, but only his niece was home. And he just kind of stayed for a few minutes because she was quite dull compared to his nephew. He doesn't say that, but I hear it. And he comes back and he doesn't go right into the house and he doesn't notice anyone about the house, which there were people about the house by now. He goes around back and goes to the pear tree and eats a couple of pears. Everyone's eating pears. Oh, wait for it. I'm going to give you the full pear breakdown. Remember, there are pears in Abby's stomach. When you got to the Borden house, did anything attract your attention at first? No, sir. Where did you first go? Went to the back door around the rear part of the house or to a pear tree. Did you do anything out there? Picked up two or three pears. Did you begin to eat them or not? I ate part of one of them. Where did you go then? I went to the house. So his alibi is that he's eating pears. Now, interestingly... Everyone's eating pears. Lizzie was also eating pears. When Lizzie Borden was called upon to testify, she said that her father had complained about being ill and lay it on the sofa, and she adjusted the pillows for him. She was preparing to do some ironing, and as her flat irons were not hot enough, she went into the barnyard to pass the time that she would have to wait before she could use them. In the yard, she picked up some pears that had fallen from the trees, and then she went into the barn for sinkers for her fish line, and intended to go to Marion the next day to fish. She knew there were sinkers in a little box upstairs in the barn, and she went there to get them. That was the first time in three months she'd gone to the, into the barn. In the barn, she ate four pears. After looking for the singer, she returned to the house, and when she got there, she found her father murdered and summoned Bridget. So again, I blame, I blame the pears. Root of all evil. Right? Demon pears. Now, interestingly enough, during Bridget's testimony, she was asked about Mr. Borden waking up that morning and going out to empty his slops, because that's fun. And the attorneys want to know what else she knows about it. Did he do anything else out in the yard besides unlock the door and empty the slops? Yes, sir. He brought in a basket of pears that he picked off the ground and brought them in. From the backyard? 
Well, he went to the yard where the pear trees was. Well, I mean, after he had picked the pears, what did he do? He brought them in the kitchen and left them on the table there. Did you notice how he left the door after he came in? Yes, he left it open. I thought it was locked. Ah! So pears. Pears are the answer to this problem that has been haunting people for 130 years. Oh my God. Years. But do you know, like, okay, so John is John Morris is asked what they had for breakfast that day. Pears. No. But there were pears in the stomach. Bananas. Bullshit. I know. I'm so bothered by this. And like he and Bridget give this different testimony about what breakfast was that day. And it's like a thing that drives me so crazy. And I'm like, you were, you were way going down the food path too hard here. I must have been hungry when I read it. But Bridget says there were Johnny Cakes, and he testifies definitively that there were not Johnny Cakes. It's a huge point of contention. Okay, so our main suspects are zombie pigeons. Definitely. Animate pear aliens. Most likely. Demons. Zach says so. Demon pigeons. Ooh, they shouldn't have eaten those pears. <laughs> right. Lizzie. I guess. Bridget. Lesbian. Well, Lizzie would be too, so... Fine. <laughs> Morse. Creepy uncle. Portuguese Marlin Spearer. Most likely. Definitely, that's it. So I'm putting my money. Benjamin Harrison, the president of the United States of America. Oh, I forgot <laughs> who that was for a second. <laughs> Everyone does. It's okay. We're in the portrait gallery, and I like forgot him the second I walked by him. He was like a weeping angel. <laughs> I didn't have his presidential number on me. And Sharpie, but I still can't remember what it was. It's like between Cleveland. Who? I mean, come on. So very likely that it's him, right? I think so. Oh, and then there's a theory that maybe Andrew killed Abby and then someone killed him. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then there's also a theory that Andrew's illegitimate son whose name is like butter apple or something like it's a ridiculously like folksy name it's a norman rockwell placard of an i think it's like butterfield or buttercup or something murdered them and then went and hidden apple orchard clearly they're wrong because it would have been pears Pears, so what i want to say about the case in conclusion here is that i have no fucking idea who did this that's a rare thing I really don't. So while public opinion remained on Lizzie's side as the trial was ongoing, it definitely turned against her. She remained in Fall River, which was considered a controversial decision. She remained in the murder house? She didn't. She and uh, Emma used all of their father's money. He left a fortune of around $300,000 at the time. Bling. Yeah. So they bought a place. They called it Maplecroft. They lived there. And Emma stayed for a while. But then Lizzie started having some really wild bohemian friends. Like Nance Neal, a silent film actress who, again, ignited lesbian rumors. But she stayed in Fall River. And people whispered. And that was pretty much the worst thing you can do to a Victorian woman. Now, 10 days after Emma died, Lizzie died. Fall River, Massachusetts, June 4th. Lizzie Borden is buried secretly. The last 34 years of her life today marked the funeral of Lizbeth A. Lizzie Borden, which is not her name. She changed it. She changed it, yeah. Um, because it sounded more glamorous. The central figure more than at three decades ago in one of the nation's outstanding murder trials. Funeral arrangements had been kept secret to prevent a gathering of morbidly curious and few who saw a small cordage entering the Oak Grove Cemetery have realized that the woman who was acquitted 
34 years ago of the murder of her father and mother, the coachman chauffeur and the gardener, who served the dead woman in her later years, were bearers, and a little group of former intimates gathered at the grave. There were many costly floral gifts, but nothing to indicate from whom they came, and the names of those who attended the services were not received, nor could be learned by Miss Borden's sister, Emma, from whom she has been separated for many years, was present. Well, she died right before that, so you're a bad reporter. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Emma didn't show up, that bitch. I mean, she was only dead. But the thing about... <laughs> her dad didn't show up either. Neither did her stepmother. I knew they didn't get along. I told you. So Lizzie's funeral happened like that because she arranged for it, too. And she actually sent invitations, arranged for invitations to be sent in the event of her death to her bohemian friends, as they were called. Morbid. Right? But they were mailed out a day too late and had the wrong date on them. Like, she arranged for them to arrive and, like, confuse people. You think she did it on purpose? Yeah, and she sent the flowers to herself. Whoa, she's nuts. She does leave a bunch of money for the upkeep of the graves. Like, her, cause she's buried near her mother and father, or stepmother. Actually, her mother and father, and her stepmother, and Emma. They all have a family plot together. And she left money for those to be cared for, and she also left a hefty sum to the ASPCA. Animal lover. Take care of the pigeons. Oh, and side note. I learned from newspapers that Lizzie taught Chinese Sunday school. I'm sorry. She spoke Mandarin? Okay, this is what I can't figure out, and I spent time looking into it. I don't know if she, if they meant that she taught two Chinese students, or if she taught Sunday school in Chinese. Or it's some like racist phrase we can't figure out. This is very curious to me, and if anyone knows whether or not Lizzie Borden spoke Mandarin, please let me know, because it's really been bothering me. Okay. So, moving on, and... Not moving on. we got a lot to talk about this thing. Okay. And the question is, is it's the important question. We've already asked it, but we're going to restate it, because we're going to talk about it. We're going to restate our thesis? Yeah. Yeah, this is very much a paper. <laughs> is why has this become folklore? Why are we talking about it? I mean, we already talked a little about how this was a turning point. Yes, we this did. This is an important point in history. Because what was changing? What was shifting? A lot. Women's roles. Women's suffrage. It was coming. It was going to get here. Temperance. Very important. But the story also speaks to everyone because of its strong themes. It doesn't have themes. It has themes. Especially when it's retold. Oh, when people reconstruct the narrative, they add their own personal biases and viewpoints and lenses, and, and it takes that's on that's what's happening themes. every okay. time this is told. And it's been retold for over a century now. I mean, they just remade a movie. They're talking about making another movie. With a girl from Big Love that I like Which a would be lot. Chloe Savinia. Nobody Savinia. knows how to say her last name, but everyone recognizes it. No. Maybe. But it looks awesome if it's made. It might actually be good. Who knows? Yeah. So it's been a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Any historical story will take on whatever guise it needs to for any given time. Right. And as any legend does, especially legends that are still told, modern legends, urban legends. And I think this one's even more rife for it because no one has a solution. Still a mystery. You can still kind of... Project more freely? Yeah, kind of put a little bias on it without going like, no, nah, but she was... But the facts clearly show, the facts yeah, clearly no, show nothing. nothing. They show pears and pigeons. 
Oh my. That was interesting. The writer of the opera wrote in 1985 that this story was a distillation of the main currents of New England history. Mr. Borden is the latter-day version of the hanging judges of Salem. Lizzie is the passionate, repressed, upper-class, unemployable Victorian spinster. And don't forget, everyone hates a wicked stepmother. I see what she's saying. I think that Borden is even a... Actually, I think these archetypes are older than New England. No, but she's saying this. This story, why it's so... It's there. I mean, this is like the American story, the New England story. It encapsulates all of the history. I think she's very wrong about it being an American story. I don't think she's saying that it's only an American story. She's saying it's a great American story. Well, you do have a man who's driven to a cold, repressive state because of his overreaching financial greed and capitalism and stuff. He's a self-made man who doesn't know how to be an aristocrat. That's a very American idea. he's pulled himself up by his bootstraps. (sighs) Bootstraps. She's been suppressed and if you look at her from the outlaw angle mm-hmm. which we talked about in our kind of bonnie and clyde outlaw episode you know the outlaw is a great folklore motif because they're not just bad guys they're going against this suppressive nature of whatever the man is the rebel it, yeah it's the government it's, we are the rebels we are the yeah. treasonous people who conspired in secret and became Americans. And so that fits the American story, too. And she got away with it. <laughs> All outlaws have to get away with it for a while. But also, speaking of that, it looks at class. Class in America. And class is very different. In theory, when you look at the American dream, there is no class. Because you can move freely between anything. You can make yourself a wealthy man, an upstanding citizen. Just by, again, like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which we'll definitely do an episode on the American dream one day. It's a it's a dream of ours. Yes, it is. That's actually very true. It's one we talk about all the time. But this is the moment when that is sort of coming into question in a very public way for the first time because you, because of mass urbanization. His, her father actually owned textile mills. Like he was the, the agent of industry. Wow, let's think about it as a symbol. Right? So Agnes DeMille, who worked on Fall River Legends, said, What lies at the heart of the story is the American relationship to wealth, this feeling of money and the power of money as a manifestation of God's will. In those days, there was only one compensation for lack of a husband, money. So you can break that down into a few different things. The importance of wealth. That's American. The attainability of it. All I have to do to get wealth is kill my father. No. (laughs) Other part. If I work hard enough and I'm good enough, I will be rich. It's like the prosperity gospel of America. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why it has taken such a stronghold in the United States. It's because it doesn't just fit with those made up Christian values. It fits with the American values as well. That's interesting. And then also the really, really... In my mind, important part to it, and I don't think I'm just coming up with it because you can look at the evidence, but is that she's she's a woman. Well, that's true. There was actually another very sensationalized murder case. I think I've mentioned it on the show before, the Gudenchupa case mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. New York, and the co-defendant in that trial was a woman. And it was deemed impolite to mention the fact that it seemed like someone had to be straddling the man, oh, Gudenchupa. No. And a woman would never do that. And murder him. Like, it was like this perfectly downward angle. Yeah, you see the prosecution saying, do not consider her a woman. Don't take this into account. And 
in the 70s and 80s, and before that probably, but especially then, you start to see it really taken up as a, a feminist story. This is not a role model. Like, I'm sorry. Well, she's rebelling against a very classical patriarchal power, the father figure. You know what? If you want to rebel, get a bag, pack it, move to Europe, and get a weird boyfriend that has a curly mustache. Like, that's how you rebel. You don't hack people up. She could have just as easily pissed them off by smoking cigarettes in public and drinking beer straight from a bottle. Yeah, but then she wouldn't have got the money out of it. And she also wouldn't have escaped the repression. She never did. Of her father. But the town never accepted her again. Right. Again, you have to look at it from a who's telling the story. Who's telling the story affects what the moral of it is. You know, is it is it a class tale? Is it revealing the seedy underbelly of the upper class that all of us lower middle class people reading the paper don't hear about? Or always knew was there. Always knew it. I knew it. You sound like your dad. I know. I knew I did when I said it. I heard it. So here's an example. You ready? Angela Carter. Okay. 1986 short story, The Fall River's Axe Murder. Great example of this. She puts it in this like oppressive August heat. The stultifying Calvinism of False River. She says, is it not the naughty 90s everywhere, but in dour Fall River? Elsewhere, champagne corks pop and women fall backwards in a crisp meringue of petticoats for fun and profit. Not in Fall River. Lizzie's environment, just how she describes it, is like confining. She's also imprisoned in a house that described as a coffin. And, of course, binding clothing. And all of her life is just a sequence of empty days, oppressive afternoons, nights stalled and calm, empty days. I have a huge problem with this. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's get into some more taste of this. Mr. Borden owns the women of the house, either by marriage, birth, or contract. In this, I mean, you can see the obvious obvious leanings, right? Yeah, I'm on it. Okay, owns them. Okay, um, let's start with Lizzie wants more than this provincial life. She wants to fall back in a meringue of petticoats. We're dreaming real big. Like, why are you giving oh, yeah. her that dream? Why is that the thing she wants? Why does she want naughty 90s? Why doesn't she want to go to the Galapagos and start study a tortoise? Like, you're making this shit up anyway. Because the 80s. 80s feminism. <laughs> Ugh. But she could be a scientist. She doesn't have to have meringue petticoats. No, but the sexual repression is a symbol of her ultimate repression by the patriarchy and her father. Don't you see, Samantha? Doesn't your vagina tingle? No. <laughs> With anger. With anger, but anyway. <laughs> Different type of anger. And like, Mr. Borden owns the women of the house. Come on. Like, he, he chose to have just girls. He did. He did not want sons. He drowned them at birth. Like, clearly. We don't know that. Clearly, clearly, the man just was out to own and repress women. I think he was pretty much a dick to everyone he met. Like, there's so many stories throughout the trial of people asking him for things or, like, stopping. He yells at fucking Dr. Bowen because he comes by when he didn't ask him to to check on his wife after he finds out she's sick. And he's like, I didn't solicit your services. He's a complete asshole to everybody. It's not re- relegated to women. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting to see how you can look at this story and look at different viewpoints and how it's told and the different angles and biases that can be placed on it. And this is why it's a legend. Well, yes. And let me just say that the idea that Lizzie Borden became a feminist icon. She has. That's undisputable. 
shows you why people are afraid of feminists. Feminists are all right. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Yes. That's the idea is that things like this give feminists a bad rap that they don't deserve necessarily. But when you embrace someone because they murdered their father, it's scary to people, you know? It's a little off-putting. Bad mascot. Bad mascot. I agree. It's like a red skin. But, you know, there are other elements that do play into the kind of sexuality element of it, especially if you go back in time. I mean, even in these original papers, they're talking about, was she nude or nearly nude? That's not something that was said in the papers. Like, you don't understand. But you read it in the paper. Right. And it was extraordinary for it to be printed. Right. Yeah, it's very scandalous. I like how they even have to say, like, or nearly nude. She was wearing a slip. A smile. But for that to be printed... In conjunction with the graphic descriptions of the murder, first of all, would have moved some fucking newspapers. This was the stuff that dreams were made of. Especially if they had a doodle of it. No doodle. There were no doodles of that. Not in these papers, anyway. I'm sure the pulps picked it up. But this implication of sexuality is there from the start. Right, there's other things, and these are from the time, like, of, of the lesbian affair. Right. Especially because she was a single woman, kind of. Kind of past marrying age. Right. And it's said that her her stepmother came out of her spinsterhood at the age of 37, four years older than Lizzie, in order to marry Andrew. It can be done. Her sister was decidedly a spinster. But there was never any story of a love affair with a man being the motive. Right. It's mentioned some in modern day writing that that was a possibility, but I mean, there's zero evidence of it. I do think it's interesting for the time that that was not the conjecture. But the idea that she was a woman and the nature of the crime definitely played into it at the time. So the prosecutor, Hosea Knowlton, did express this kind of idea of a woman murderer, the possibility of a woman murderer, in his closing statement. The prisoner at the bar is a woman, and a Christian woman, as the expression is used. It's no ordinary criminal that we are trying today, is one of the rank of lady, equal of your wife and mine, of your friend and mine, of whom such things had never been suspected or dreamed before. I hope I may never forget, nor in anything that I say here today lose sight of the terrible significance of that fact. I am obliged to tread now upon a more delicate ground. The prisoner is a woman, one of that sex that all high-minded men revere, that all generous men love, that all wise men acknowledge their indebtedness to. It's hard, it is hard, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, to conceive that woman can be guilty of crime, but I am obliged to say, what strikes the justice of every man to whom I am talking, that while we revere the sex, while we show our courtesies to them, they are now worse than we. If they lack in strength and course and vigor, they make up for in cunning and dispatch and celerity and ferocity. If their loves are stronger and more enduring than those of men, am I saying too much that, on the other hand, their hates are more undying, more unyielding, more persistent? Sam's just sitting there shaking her head. I'm not shaking my head so much as raising my eyebrows because this is the most eloquent rendition of Bitches Be Cray I ever heard. So the coyotes have joined us. Holy shit. They agree with me. So the thing about Lizzie and the thing about the way in which men need to cast her in order to believe that she's capable of this 
is that they need to turn her from this spinster. From a lady. Okay, so she is neutral. Okay, but before we get to that point, you need to touch just on the lady part. Just on the lady parts. I don't <laughs> want to touch the lady parts. I'm not going to mention the fact that he's like, it is hard. It is hard. And then to conceive, and it strikes, and it, like, it's such, like... No, 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 it's important to talk about that, because what he's doing, unknowingly, is he's saying, if she could do it, your wife could do it, your daughter could do it, can you even, could you even imagine? I mean, it's hard like a penis. God, no Freud, that's a default. <laughs> but no, like, I mean, think about it, and I think you've got this turn of the century, late 19th century, and you're saying these women that we hold in such high esteem they can be murderers so he's doubling the threatening population yeah, yeah. i'd find her innocent too Terrifying. i'd be like nope nope women can't do that now i only have to worry about men hurting me ever yeah so in a way the repressive social norm gender type that she's forced into and the society that she's in kind of saves her ass Oh, it totally saves her ass. So this is where a dude, he'd be... Okay, so women have advantages in, like, two things. They're, like, prettier. That's just true. And they get out of murder sentences. Like, that's what we've got, guys. That's, that's like, what we've got going for us. That is where our advantage is. And we will probably get cast to be an announcer on the weekend news before you will. Well, one writer points out that 19th century notions of gender might allow a gentleman to wrestle with the good and evil within him, but a woman could only embody good or evil. And this really, this kind of essentialism, really reflected the criminology of the time. You know, Lizzie's social rank and her church going, her teaching Chinese church school, <laughs> whatever, that showed that she was a good woman. And she couldn't be in the middle. She couldn't be a gray character. She's good or evil. She's good or she's insane. She's a lunatic. We need to lock her up. Oh, I'm really, really, really surprised that they did not push mental degeneration harder. Like, I'm I'm shocked that that was not the angle. Because if they would have said she needs to go to an insane asylum instead of be hanged for her crimes, I think she could have been convicted, even if she didn't do it. But, I mean, at the time, like you're saying, you even see it now, I mean, the numbers support it. Women kind of get a more lenient sentencing. Yes, that's true. And so historian Ruth Harris found in a study of several hundred French murderesses between 1880 and 1910, who were by and large acquitted, just like Lizzie, that this criminological theory used in their defense was marked by a pervasive assessment of gender as a key factor determining the form, style, and nature of criminality. The criminel, passionel, was acquitted because her stated motives seemed to reinforce a portrait of the feminine, which was neither socially dangerous nor morally deviant. These women were like shoot or kill or throw vitriol at the men who'd abandoned them or at women who'd replaced them in their husband's affections. But that's it. Crimes of passion. That's all that a woman could do. Well, aside from the category of black widows, which do exist in nature and the world, you know, women who kill for money, not the spiders, those do too, but that really is still true. There have been studies done, and I actually looked at this for our Skeletons in the Closet episode. There have been studies that women generally kill either in self-defense in defense of their children, in defense of their livelihood, out of feelings of being wronged, feelings of abandonment, fears of abandonment, things of that nature. 
much, much more often than they do out of anger, rage, or any kind of need to, I guess what you would consider like your your typical serial killer motive, whatever that is. We, if we could define it, maybe there wouldn't be serial killers anymore, so I'm not going to try. But so much more often, it's a responsive act, and it's an isolated act. You know, you find women who are in situations of domestic violence that kill, or women who are in bad relationships that kill. And so the threat to larger society seems less. And in this case, you could see that being what happened, you know, an isolated incident related to a very specific situation. But at the time, it was hard to acknowledge that you could separate her out. It's such a gruesome, horrendous murder. And these people were hatched it up. They weren't just killed with poison. And I think had they found Lizzie covered in blood, they would have pursued that crazy angle. Oh, definitely. But the idea that she had the forethought and the ability to conceal the crime made her not only not crazy, but smarter than anyone ever. And that wouldn't do. And I think in that way, the suppositions about women's intelligence and the pervasive belief that they were not the intellectual equals of men played in her favor because men needed to believe that she was not smart enough to have pulled it off. I definitely think that is an element. Another interesting element to her is that she was kind of this this middle ground, this third nature of woman. She was a spinster. As compared to a Madonna or a whore? Yes, you can definitely see it as those kind of three categories. And, and originally, the term spinster was just a term used for women that spun yarn and things like that. By the 17th century, it had become a proper legal designation. For women still unmarried, no matter age or if they were going to get married or not. It's like you could be a spinster of the church and get married the next year. It was, it was no big deal. But by the 18th century, it really became tied to those kind of negative connotations and tied to that old maid type mm-hmm. that is seen. So it started to take on that negative connotation really kind of in the 1700s. And this was especially because there was this kind of newfound reverence for wives. Yes, they are Mother Mary. Come, yes, down, come down to teach us grace. So cultural stereotypes around the spinster range from this pitiable, peevish old woman to this vicious harridan. And they really took form in the 18th century when writers began to emphasize their peculiar personality defects. William Haley in the 1785 Philosophical, Historical, and Moral Essays upon Old Maids. Oh, oh. That is a page turner. It's quite a treatise. We would like to take a moment to apologize for our loud frogs. He focused on the particular failings of old maids. Curiosity, credulity, affectation, and envy and ill nature. As well as on the particular good qualities of old maids, such as ingenuity, patience, and charity. I think it's really impressive that I'm not an old maid, given their list of flaws. If credulity and curiosity could make one an old maid... (laughs) Than you are. But he was, in a way, trying to kind of re-domesticate the idea. Trying to bring it in to the socially acceptable norms. And kind of instead of having a Madonna whore come back, she could either be this married perfect mother or this prostitute. You could have this kind of third, almost second class citizen that was a spinster. That still had some positive qualities and they were still, of course, celibate. I mean... You would actually be a whore. If you were not. So you had to be. So they still had some 
positive cause. It might be charitable. They might give to the ASPCA and the Temperance League. And teach Chinese Sunday school. Exactly. Whatever the fuck that means. So to the Victorian, the spinster was either pitiable or contemptible simply because of her spinsterhood. Because yeah, it was a mark of right. like your moral character. Yeah, because marriage is that ultimate goal. Right, because after you're married, there's never any suck again. Yeah, it's all good. So by choosing or not being able to get married, one is an outlier, an outsider, out of our social norms. I want to study, I know it's been done, it's somewhere, I will find it, on how many people executed for witchcraft had been old maids or spinsters. It'd be interesting. Because I would bet you that it's a significant proportion. Right. I mean, before this, it was definitely seen as a threat to the family unit. Someone that wouldn't get married was not doing their godly duty. Go forth and multiply. We didn't say go forth and knit with your cats. We're going to execute you. One writer said, it was not just the disgrace and the shame of failing to get a husband, but their denial by society of any identity. Right, and who would willingly seek that out? Like, you could so easily just conform and make everyone happy. Why wouldn't you do it? But in this Anglo-American culture, the never-married old maid is a stock character, a bundle of negative personal characteristics, and a metaphor for barrenness, ugliness, and death. Does any of that sound familiar? Monstrous feminine. I mean, Lizzie. Oh, yes. Well, Lizzie has turned into our modern-day monstrous feminine. Oh, definitely. But, I mean, this is how she was described in the paper at the time. She's like, ugly. Not very attractive. Features. Like, she looks better since she's not been fed. Like She's death incarnate. I think it's really interesting that despite those negative ideas, she was still seen as primarily a lady, primarily a woman. She didn't lose her gender. She wasn't sexless. Had they been able to convincingly portray her as this kind of third sex, as this kind of third option, not fully woman because she doesn't have children, etc., I think they could have sold the jury on convicting her. Oh, I think so too. If they'd gone crazy or not woman, they really could have sold it. But you couldn't say think of her as a man. And you had you can't. to... You can't say think of her as a man. You have to say, like, she's not fully a woman. She's never done the things that women do. She doesn't. So, see, you must you must hang her high from the gallows and sing a song about it. And it's interesting because at this time, at the end of the 19th century, it's that turning point. It's the turning point that we discussed earlier. And those ideas of spinsterhood and of getting married are changing just as they are today. Right, there were actually intellectual women who were choosing not to be married. At the time, there was a large number of marriageable women, especially in the Northeast, that were spinsters. As Lizzie was in the Northeast. Right, I mean, because there was Des from the Civil War. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. Um, people were leaving to go west, young man. Haven't you been told? Yeah. And this also happened in Britain a little earlier with the Napoleonic Wars. A huge dearth of unmarried women because there just weren't enough men around. But the other thing that was changing is that women were consciously choosing not to get married. Because you have organizations of women, really, for the first time. And women are replacing men as schoolmasters. That is something that happens. That is. um, And taking jobs in factories as we become a more industrialized nation. There mm -hmm, are jobs mm -hmm. for women outside the home. You can go 
paint radium on the on watch dials. Nice. It's perfect. So the ideas of marriage were changing. I mean, you had things like the temperance movement leading to the women's suffrage movement where you did have organizations of women and you had women that were coming out saying it's perfectly fine not to be married. You have Louisa May Alcott who wrote Happy Women in 1868 saying, One of the trials of womankind is the fear of being an old maid. To escape this dreadful doom, young girls rush into matrimony with a recklessness which astonishes the beholder, never pausing to remember that the loss of liberty, happiness, and self-respect is poorly repaid by the barren honor of being called Miss instead of Mrs. And Susan B. Anthony said, I declare to you that woman must not depend upon the protection of man, but must be taught to protect herself, and there I take my stand. So you start to see this real transition in the 18th and 19th century of when one should get married. Now, Thomas Gisborne warned young women in 1797 in An Inquiry into the Duties of the Female Sex that society expects them to marry well, meaning to someone of wealth, but he argues that marriage should be based on morality instead of economics. He argues that mercenary marriage is doomed to unhappiness, claiming that it would be folly to expect that such marriages, however much they may answer the purpose of interest or of ambition, should terminate otherwise than in wretchedness. And he's really echoing these ideas that happiness is a necessary consideration in forming any marriage, however equitable or advantageous, because, quote, the prospect of passing a single month with an acquaintance whose society we know to be unpleasing is a prospect from which every mind recoils, and the evil would appear in foresight scarcely to be endured. A person valuing happiness in marriage should thus look for affection with a potential spouse before entering an engagement. He said marriage is presented as effectively the only path to female respectability, so that even those who recognize its drawbacks opt for it, focusing their attention to when, whom, and how to wed. So rather than marrying someone they could learn to love, young people expected to marry someone they did love. But by the 19th century, these ideals of marriage based on love, this mysterious, unintentional love, had gained really wide acceptance. Well, romance was taking hold, my dear. Right? My dear, my darling. So at the t- same time, you have this religiously grounded morality informing the ideals of character. In the sense, not simply of a complex of mental and ethical traits, but also of moral excellence. Hmm. You had to be good enough. You must be good enough and pure enough and virtuous enough. And then and only then, when you have washed away all the sins of your eviness, a man might love you. Well, it also applied the other way around, is that women should not accept a man that they didn't truly love. Okay, so is this like the moment in time when the women are supposed to be trying to keep men from running the baseball bases kind of thing happens? Charged with being the keepers of the sex? Yes. From social standpoint in this culture, you know, in our Western culture. And maybe, is it all Western or is this an American moment? I think very American English, right? Anglo American. Yeah, Anglo. Yeah, very Anglo-American, actually, point in the culture where it becomes it. But, of course, there are, you know, biological elements to that as well that go all the way back to us being little voles. 
little what? Voles. Voles? We were vole-like mammals. I don't want to be a vole. You're not anymore. Aren't those the things that have like the star on the end of their nose? That is a type of mole. <laughs> is that not a vole? Is a mole not a vole? They're related. <laughs> So our cousins had starry noses. Well, now I'm bummed that I don't have a starry nose. I would be great on Star Trek. But I know where you're going with this. And I believe that this is some really convenient evolutionary psych slash evolutionary bio. Because you can argue that women had to be more selective about their mates. Right. I mean, you have to be more selective because you have to find someone that will first obs have some good genes. Yeah. Got that ass. What ass? We got the good ass jeans. Oh, you want the good ass jeans? Is what yeah, don't you? Clearly. <laughs> That's right. But you kind of, you know, you want the good jeans first of all. But then also, you want someone that, in theory, can you know like, take care of you, especially as we became more social animals. And you can see this with alpha males and primates as well, of course. Okay, so I'm actually going to push back a little bit on this. Like, I know that there's a large body of thought and theory on this. And I know that it's supposedly evident in the way our society is formed. I think it's a piece of the puzzle. But to say that women have to be incredibly selective is kind of misleading because Menarche, or the time when women became fertile, would have been later in their lives and they would have died earlier. Yes. They would have times when they were naturally not as fertile or not fertile, like when they're actually pregnant or when they're breastfeeding. And uh, breastfeeding is like a little, a little less fertile. It's a myth that you can't have a baby. <laughs> right. But you are less fertile. Yes. And they would breastfeed for longer. Yes, definitely. And so you are creating years in theory where you're not as fertile or not fertile in a period of about 10 to 15 years of your life. No, you have more time than that. You, you died when you're 30. Depends on what time you're talking about. I'm talking about like our old, like Lucy far back. Like oh, far, far you back. died even before. Yeah, 30. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, um, well, and also, whenever there's a lack of resources, you're less fertile as well. And that still occurs. And you can see it in um, like anorexic patients or people that are high intensity athletes. Right. So there are a lot of factors that would contribute to women not being as susceptible to becoming pregnant. But you can look at it from the other angle. You are less fertile. You have a less of a chance of having a kid. And thus, when you do have one, it's even more important that you have the appropriate social standing and the appropriate kind of connections and ability to be cared for it sounds like such a ridiculous word. It, is a ridiculous it sounds like a my word. But it means you're in the appropriate social standing within a group. You are protected from other groups. You're protected from other males. And you are provided sources of food. And you can see that all with chimps, gorillas, etc. I see what you're saying, and it does make sense, but you're still placing a social construction on instinct. You are saying that social constructions are justified. Yes, they might be. But what is the instinct? Is the instinct to make sure that you have someone to take care of you before you have a baby? Or is the instinct to have a baby? Okay, so that's putting you further down the evolutionary chain. It depends on what you consider a human. Um, because you can go and look at, I mean, he's like chimps, but you can look at birds. Um, you can look at other types of social groups and other animals 
and in really highly cognitively involved animals, you do start to see kind of the theory of mind start to be chipped away. And you do start to see that animals do have these something beyond instincts where they are doing things for future gain. I think my point with all of this is if you look back and you have to look back before the commodification of sex, because women have not had a lot of agency over their own sexuality for millennia. And if you want to start looking at points in time where things are decided, I don't think that that is far enough back to be ingrained into our being at an instinctual level yet. But for a long time, women were traded. Fathers traded daughters. Alliances were made that way and social groups were formed that way. But it's not necessarily the woman's agency that is participating in that change. They're guarding their resources and their unsullied daughter is a resource. No, you're right. And that's why I try to be clear to say it's a piece of the puzzle. It's a piece of the puzzle. It can definitely be applied to more modern times when, while there, of course, is still commodification of sex and there always will be <laughs> at this time you do start to see that social change right women are actively choosing who they will mate with who they will marry who they will partner with are importantly to this discussion choosing who they will not and choosing if they will not at all and this becomes a huge element in society that it can be okay kind of or it can even be morally justifiable to choose to not have a mate if you cannot find a partner that is one that you can truly love. Okay, so that is the socially acceptable moment in which one should choose not to get married. If you've never found, quote, the one. Right, and you start to see articles about it. In 1868, the nation asked, Why is single life becoming more general? And so this explanation in the process of civilization. Men and women can less easily find anyone whom they are willing to take as a partner for life. Their requirements are more exacting, their standards of excellence higher, they are less able to find any who can satisfy their own ideal and less able to satisfy anybody else's ideal. And in Peterson's magazine in 1858 said, quote, Marry for a home! Exclamation point. How dare you! then pervert the most sacred institution of the Almighty by becoming the wife of a man for whom you can feel no emotions of love or respect even. Oh my, that is a genuinely terrifying prospect I can't imagine. Marry for a home. So, wow, this is still such an undercurrent in our society. We still say, like, oh, she wants her MRS degree. But you also see the rise of the unmarried adult and that that percentage is definitely increasing this might sound very familiar because you'll see articles about this with take the god part out and put self mm-hmm. and because well you can go into a million year discussion about that <laughs> and you'll see people writing things like this one young woman wrote all the time i feel within me that i do not love you with the intensity of which i am capable i can almost believe i love him enough to go at him at once I'm sure there are chambers in my heart that he could not unlock. I do feel that it is in me to love, humanly, as I have never loved him. I've overheard this discussion at coffee shops, but it's like, you know, I just, 
I just want him to look at me the way that Edward looks at Bella. Honest to God, I overheard it one time. Yes. Yeah, Not kidding. Not kidding. I just don't feel like he would wait for me for a hundred years. So unrealistic expectations due to romantic propaganda, I think is what I would cast this well, as. Well, I think more importantly than your other point, like this is where that comes from. Romantic propaganda? Yes. 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 Even Clara Barton. Clara Barton, we saw her ambulance. We did. And who is a famous Civil War nurse, said she had her romances and love affairs, but though she thought of different men as possible lovers, not one of them measured up to her ideal of a husband. Oh, ideals. Ideals are really difficult. Ideals are tricky. So are you familiar with, Jacob, the expectation versus reality meme? Well, of course. I feel like expectation over the last century and a half has become a dizzying whirligig of glitter and fireworks. Or it's the Ryan Gosling meme. And double meme you. Ah. Hey, girl. <laughs> hey, girl. I, I think those are still more possible than the idea that you can find the rest of yourself in another human being. Like, there are chambers of my heart he cannot unlock. Well, how do you know they're there? You know, like, what are we're... What source material are we working with here? I don't feel that they've cited it well. But even at this time, it was seen as this, like, these proto-feminist, as almost like a cause. I mean, we've already quoted several of them. And you start to see people saying, well, this is a great way for you to have some self-fulfillment. By being single? Yeah, focus on that. Or focus on bettering the world. Humanitarian causes. Yes. Take your motherly instincts. Mm-hmm. And instead of having a child, the world can be your child. I'd like to teach the world to sing. It's like a Coke commercial for nuns. I mean, these are secular nuns is basically what we're building. Draper made it. Speaking on the nun thing, you know, you have that purity. Mm -hmm. The purity of chastity. With this, you get a purity of motive and a purity Mm, of love. Altruism. Yes. Like seeking, it's a selfless denial that you're making. Now, I do want to point out that while these badass bitches were choosing not to marry, they were not out catting around. (laughs) If you chose to be an unmarried woman and you were found to be engaging in extramarital sex, you would have been pilloried. It was not okay. So that is a big difference between today and yesteryear. There was no Carrie, Charlotte, Samantha, Miranda nonsense. There was B. Anthony. (laughs) And one of my favorite kind of proto-feminists, I guess you can call her, is Elizabeth Blackwell. Yes. The first female physician in the U.S. And she took up her medical studies as a result, a strong attraction she felt for a man whom she considered below her standards. The, quote, felt need of engrossing occupation was one of the chief reasons which finally decided my occupation. So by devoting herself to medicine, she was hoping to place an insuperable barrier between herself and the, quote, disturbing influences of her attraction, which she, quote, could not wisely yield to, but could not otherwise stifle. It's a, I just want to say, have you ever had a crush so bad you had to go to medical school? <laughs> Poor decision. <laughs> But she, but I mean, it, I love it because she's like, that guy's an idiot. I'm so much smarter than him. I'm so much better than him. I'm going to freaking medical school. I've Idle hands, idle hands. I mean, she was basically like fawning over the gardener or something and was like, nope, nope, not going to go live in the hut. You know? <laughs> Can't do it. 
So in a monograph on 19th century spinsters, Lee Vergenchamber Schiller wrote that defined elective spinsterhood as a dramatic new form of female independence rooted in the individualistic ethic of the Enlightenment and the American Revolution. And emerging in the early 19th century, women's rejection of marriage was the outcome of a rigorous assessment of the marital institution that found it wanting and in conflict with female autonomy, self-development, and achievement. I don't think he's that wrong. You know, when you say something like the 19th century monograph on spinsters, I expect it to be like a real asshole thing. I expect it to be like, their brains are too small to understand why they need men. That's what I expect. But without a doubt, at this time, women were becoming dangerous. Oh, that's very true. Dangerous. They were finding causes. They were getting careers. They were becoming teachers. They, they were, were becoming demanding. nurses. They were becoming doctors. They were demanding equality. And that's scary to the man who can see his wife and can see his daughter demanding the same things, just as the jurors in the Lizzie Borden case did not want to see their wife and their daughter with the same ideas in this dangerous, dangerous position. When you've been able to exclude over half of the world's population from the group of people that you need to be worried about, that could harm you, that could compete with you, that could hurt you, the sudden realization that maybe you're wrong can be very, very disconcerting. And that scary tale is not just a story. That's right, it's not. Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen